This episode is brought to you by Element. That's spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious, sugar-free electrolyte drink mix. I've stocked up on boxes and boxes of this stuff. I have an entire shelf in my garage full of these boxes, and I usually use one to two per day. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. If you've ever struggled to feel good on these diets, it's most likely because even if you're consciously consuming some electrolytes, you may not be getting enough. Electrolytes play a key role in relieving hunger, cramps, headaches, tiredness, dizziness. This is where Element can really help. And now, with the winter months ahead of us, it's important to know that sweat evaporates much more quickly in cold, dry weather, misleading our bodies into thinking that we aren't losing fluids and electrolytes. As a result, our thirst response can decrease up to 40%. This response means that our kidneys don't receive the signals they need from hormones to conserve water, instead causing our urine production to increase. Electrolytes are crucial to supporting antidiuretic hormone, ADH, also known as vasopressin, V-A-S-O. This hormone helps us to get through the night with minimal the fewest number of bathroom breaks, improving sleep quality. Going to sleep dehydrated is a recipe for poor sleep quality. To make it easier for you guys to stay hydrated in the winter, Element has developed a versatile new flavor, chocolate salt. Chocolate salt can be enjoyed cool, like Element's other tasty flavors. Citrus salt is probably my favorite, but it's especially delicious when served hot, whether with water or even milk, just like you would with a cup of hot cocoa or tea. I like adding it to my coffee in the morning, so I'd have a small amount of cream, could be coconut cream, could be some other type of cream, coffee, and then I'll add in the element, usually to at least 16 to 20 ounces of coffee. So that's a good amount that I can kind of sip on throughout the morning. Sugar, artificial ingredients, coloring, all that nonsense are unhealthy and unneeded. There's none of that stuff in Element. Who uses Element? Here are just a few. Three Navy SEAL teams, as prescribed by their Master Chief. Marine units, FBI sniper teams, at least five NFL teams have subscriptions, as well as many NBA players and coaches. Element is the executive hydration partner of Team USA Weightlifting, and the list goes on and on. So try it totally risk-free. If you don't love it, Element will give you your money back. No questions asked. They have extremely low return rates. I checked on this as I was doing due diligence for these guys long, long ago. Element came up with a very special offer for you, my dear listeners. They've created Tim's Club. Simply go to drinkelement.com slash Tim. That's drinklmnt.com slash Tim. Select subscribe and save and use promo code Tim's Club to get the 30-count box of Element for only $36. This will be valid for the lifetime of the subscription, and you can pause it anytime. Again, that's drinklmnt.com slash Tim for this exclusive offer using promo code Tim's Club. One more time, drinkelement.com slash Tim and promo code Tim's Club. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. What is VPN? Virtual Private Network. It's an app that you run on your computer or your mobile device. It secures your internet connection, hides your public IP address, and lets you bypass regional restrictions on content. And I actually asked my followers on Twitter, 1.5 or 1.6 million of you, for VPN recommendations, your favorites. Many wrote back that ExpressVPN was their favorite, including a number of people who've been on this podcast. So I give it a shot, and it is ridiculously fast, uh, to the extent that I thought I didn't have it on, <laughs> to give you an idea. ExpressVPN is consistently rated the fastest VPN service on the market. It's incredibly easy to use, and it's one, two, three. Just download the app, tap one button, and you're connected to a secure VPN server. And I recommend checking out the website, 
just to see the sign up flow. They make it really smooth, very easy to sign up. And if you're an entrepreneur or do any web based front end development or design, rather, it's worth checking out for that alone. So, ExpressVPN. What are we talking about here? ExpressVPN is great for when you need to get work done while you're on some sketchy Wi-Fi network, for instance. And I've had a number of hacker friends of mine show me how easy it is to snoop on public Wi-Fi just by downloading simple apps. You do not need a computer science background to do that, which scares the hell out of me. So if you don't want to be a victim of that, you can use ExpressVPN. Or if you're traveling and need to access something that's only available in another country, well, lickety-split, ExpressVPN has you covered. ExpressVPN is useful not only for entrepreneurs and remote workers and travelers like yours truly, but really for anyone who wants protection from being snooped on or having their personal data stolen. You just use the internet like you normally would, but with ExpressVPN encrypting all of your network traffic to safeguard your data. So check it out. Visit my special link at expressvpn.com slash Tim and you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Tim to claim your special deal. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now it is seen an appropriate time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. Hello, boys and girls. 
Ladies and germs, this is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers of all different types to tease out the habits, routines, favorite books, and so on that you can use. Cereal, maybe. Who knows? Morning routines. My guest today is Harley Finkelstein on Twitter, at Harley F. Harley is an entrepreneur, lawyer, and the chief operating officer, that's COO, of Shopify. He founded his first company at age 17 while a student at McGill. Harley is an advisor to Felicis Ventures, and he is one of the dragons on CBC's Next Gen Den. In 2017, he received the Canadian Angel Investor of the Year Award and Canada's Top 40 Under 40 Award. And in 2016, he was inducted into the Order of Ottawa. From 2014 to 2017, Harley was on the board of the C100. And from 2017 to 2020, he was on the board of directors of the Canadian Broadcasting Company, CBC, in other words, Twitter at Harley F, Instagram at Harley. Harley, welcome to the show. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me. It's a, a real honor to be on the show. I love interviewing my friends because it gives me an excuse to do a deep dive and interrogate in a way that would just be totally abnormal and maybe sociopathic <laughs> over it's a awesome. dinner table. <laughs> and I thought we would start with describing or explaining what Shopify is for those who may not know. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, Shopify has obviously grown considerably over the last couple of years, certainly post-IPO in 2015. Uh, people read about us more often, but I think most people know us as an e-commerce provider, an e-commerce platform, the place you go to build an online store. My version, though, of what Shopify is, is really a bit different than that. I think Shopify is the world's first retail operating system. And we can get into what that means at a deeper level. But fundamentally, I think what we do is we enable anyone that wants to sell a product to do so, whether that's online or offline or anywhere else. And I, I think from a, a vision perspective, where I'd like us to get to is I want Shopify to be the entrepreneurship company. I, I don't think there's been a company that's ever been created that has been the entrepreneurship company. And I think we, we probably have the best shot at that. So that's a bit how I see Shopify. Mm -hmm. And if we wanted to peg some numbers to that, any kind of stats or numbers, what can you share that yeah. would give people uh, maybe a, an infographic of the mind, mm -hmm. sort of an ideal of the scale and scope of what we're talking about? Yeah. So we currently have over a million stores on Shopify. So a million businesses, a million brands host their commerce on Shopify. The majority of those brands would self-identify as small businesses. And some of them that were small grew into be really, really big businesses. The Allbirds of the world or the Bombuses of the world or the Gymsharks of the world or the Fashion Novas. But for the most part, we have a million stores on the platform. And if you were to pretend for a second, we're not a retailer. But if you were to pretend just for a moment that Shopify was a retailer, we would be the second largest online retailer in America after Amazon. And the reason I mention that is because one of the things that has happened over the last couple of years as we've grown and have become, for a lot of people, the default commerce platform, we've been able to aggregate a ton of these stores to get economies of scale, which we then give to entrepreneurs and, and help level the playing field. And you and I have spent countless hours talking about what it means to level the playing field for <laughs> entrepreneurs. And in terms of the company, depends on the day you look, our, we're a publicly traded company. Our market cap is above $100 billion, which still sounds unbelievable to say and, and something that's kind of amazing. We have about 6,000 employees across 17 offices all over the world. And in Q2 of this year, so this past quarter, uh, we're talking 2020, our merchants sold about $30 billion worth of products on Shopify. So that's sort of some of the high-level stuff. All right. So we're going to stay on the present tense for a little bit, and then we're going to zoom past tense. Present tense, or I suppose this encapsulates any period of time, really, but 
What books have been most formative for you in your business journey with Shopify and or what have you gifted the most to other people? What books? Yeah. Um, one of the books that was suggested to me early on in my Shopify journey was High Output Management, and which is the Andy Grove book from uh, who, who had obviously built Intel and, and had done an amazing job. And one of the reasons that it was recommended to me was it seemed to cut through a lot of the BS of most business books. For better or for worse, I went to business school and we can talk about education stuff. I actually found law school to be 10x more valuable and instrumental for my journey as an entrepreneur and, and running a big company. But I did go to business school. The business books that that they naturally give out, I just I, I thought were just, was just full of platitudes and full of things that I just didn't find very wise, whereas I found High Up in Management to be by far one of the greatest books. And then actually, I think Ben Horowitz's book, Hard Things About Hard Things, is almost like the modern iteration of High Up in Management as well. And that's been another big part of things that have been valuable to me in, in, in my own career. That said, uh, we are in the middle of a global pandemic. And one book that I recently reread that I, I know you're, uh, that you, you know about is Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile. And the reason I found it incredibly valuable to reread it is it feels like we're in a time of great breakage, of great change. And it feels to me like what is emerging through this global pandemic are two types of people and two types of entrepreneurs and two types of individuals, which is those that are resistant, that are kind of waiting for things to go back to the status quo, that are looking forward and anticipating when normalcy will return. But then there's this whole other cohort of people, a whole other cohort of, of businesses even, who are resilient, who are not waiting for the status quo to return, but rather are thinking about how they can use what is happening as this incredible catalyst to change everything and to pivot and to adapt. And the neat part about anti-fragile is it talks about obviously the two main systems being robustness and fragility. But then Talib introduces this third system, of course, which is anti-fragile, where things actually get better, stronger as they break, um, like the immune system, for example. And I've just found that to be an amazing book for the current time we're living in right now, that you can take two people in the same circumstances and one just resist and the other simply is resilient about it. And that book just encompasses that. In terms of the book that I'm reading right now, is I'm actually reading, this is shocking, but I'm reading my first fiction book ever. Um, and I asked, I've never read a fiction book in my whole life. I just, I haven't, I just wasn't into it. <laughs> and, and I know it sounds so crazy, but I just, you know, it's not where I get, I, I usually read in order to get smarter or to understand a particular thing better, whether it's biographies or it's, you know, a business book or just generally a fascinating book about a, an, an interesting true story. And I'm actually reading The Alchemist right now. And I, I know, and it's a book you, you, you know, well, and mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing because the relationship that I have with reading The Alchemist relative to reading a book where I'm highlighting, I'm trying to digest, I'm trying to reflect on it, is just completely different. And it's actually a lot more enjoyable. <laughs> actually, one of the books that I've given out the most, it's probably not the book, but in the early days of Shopify, I probably gave out 100 copies of The 4-Hour Workweek. And, and, and I'm not saying that to flatter you and I are already friends, I don't need to flatter you. But <laughs> what, I, what, I, what I would say, though, is the reason that book was so important was because in 2010, the idea of a side hustle or the idea of a hobby project that eventually gets commercialized was just not in the ether. It was just not in the atmosphere. And this idea that you can actually build systems to allow you to run a business concurrently with doing anything else you're doing, whether you're in school or you have another job, that was somewhat foreign. And yet 
I knew that if we encourage more people to experiment with side hustles, it would lead to entrepreneurship and hopefully would eventually lead to them using Shopify. So certainly that was, um, that was an important book in, in, in my life, but also in Shopify's life. Well, you've alluded to something we will spend time on, which is the, the current state of affairs and the future of retail, right? Because in some ways, it seems like many trends that may have, may have been projected for 2030 have been pushed to the front of the line uh, very, very quickly. So things have been compressed. So I want to ask you about the future of retail. But before we do, I want to talk about the past of Shopify. And I thought maybe a useful way to frame that or just a fun way to frame that would be, number one, can you repeat the number of employees and market cap of the company right now, depending on the day, obviously, but give or take? About 6,000. I think we're over 6,000 employees and market cap is, I don't know, 100 and something billion, uh, depending on the day. I think it's around 120, 130 billion. Okay. And when we first met, how many (laughs) employees were there and what was the market cap? Uh, so speak. We first met in sort of mid 2010. We had probably, I would say, around a dozen people at the company total. And I think we had just either had just raised or about to raise our Series A. Just about to raise. Yeah, I think we were just about to raise our Series A. And I think our Series A was, I mean, it was sub 50 million. I remember the exact number, but it was definitely sub 50 million. So yeah, I guess a lot <laughs> has changed from our, our original encounter, Tim, to now. Wow, yeah. I think when you, when you put it in that perspective with that type of delta, it does seem quite incredible. <laughs> and so I think this is a good time to just say, and of course, I've said this before, and you and I have shared a lot of tacos and not a small quantity of tequila on occasion. <laughs> but I just want to say publicly that it has been such a joy to see you and your family and obviously your your close friends like Toby and so on, and the entire team. But since I know you personally, just to see you do so well has been so fun and such a joy for me. And just like you're not blowing smoke up my ass, you know this isn't me blowing smoke up yours, although I do wonder where that expression comes from. But (laughs) not losing my train of thought, it couldn't have happened to just a nicer group of people. I I really feel that way. And I just want to congratulate you. It's it's, It's been awesome to watch in the very literal sense of awesome. So... Well done. I appreciate you saying that. It's um, it's it's been the journey of a lifetime, and there is not a second that goes by that I, I take any of it for granted. I think that part of the story is that we've built something special and meaningful and valuable to the world, but also we've done it. You know, Toby likes to say that we are on a journey doing difficult things with friends, and that I think there's nothing better in the world of doing things that are difficult and challenging with people that you deeply like and you deeply respect. And the cool part about it is. A lot of the friends we had in the early days, like you, for example, you're still part of the story today. I mean, you and I talked earlier today, unrelated to this podcast, but something totally different related to your business and our business and finding a connection point and and helping each other. That type of community, people talk a lot about their group of friends or their group of their, their community, the people they spend the most amount of time with. But there's also sort of a peer group at a company level. I think 
that tends to get lost because most companies as they grow, and especially historically, if you study, you know, the if you study founders going back, you know, 100 years, at some point, there is this natural graduation where someone decides it's time to bring in the quote unquote adult supervision or something like that. And mm-hmm. you sort of lose the connection with the founding story. But because for the most part, those of us that are still at Shopify today are, are still the same group that were there in the early days, we've brought each other along with us and we've brought our friends along with us also. And it's made for a much richer experience. It's made for a much uh, more meaningful journey when you do it with people and you grow together. Um, Now, obviously, the flip side of that is in order to do that, every single person, particularly on the the leadership team, has to re-qualify for their job every single year. And that is difficult in year one and year two, it becomes incredibly difficult in year 10, year 11, and, and you know year 15, where the stakes, the challenges, the opportunities are all so much bigger. But I think for the most part, we've, we've all focused on requalifying for our job and also keeping our, I, I don't want to say modesty, but, but just staying grounded in this whole thing and, and, and realizing that, you know, there is like, we're the same folks who started, who were there at the beginning. And, and, I don't know that in, in that way, it's, it's just been a really awesome experience for us. <laughs> well, you guys are still nice Canadian boys. I know I was gonna, maybe it's a Canadian thing. Maybe the only reason we're nice <laughs> is because we're Canadian. Um, and, uh, and, and frankly, I can, I can tell you that, that there are some challenges that come with the Canadian thing as well. There's a lot of great advantages. There's something called the tall poppy syndrome here in Canada, yeah. which is you don't want to grow too tall because someone's going to chop you down. And, and you, you do feel that from time to time. But for the most part, building a company outside, a tech company outside of Silicon Valley, I think has been incredibly valuable to us. I'm going to bookmark a bunch of things here. So I'm going to bookmark outside of Silicon Valley because most people do not think Ottawa when they think one of the largest tech companies in the world, for instance. And then I'm, I'm going to bookmark tall poppy syndrome. We may, we'll probably not come back to that. So it's it's more of a, a note for myself. But I didn't realize it was an issue in Canada as well. It's an issue throughout the entire Commonwealth, right? Mm-hmm. This is an issue and an expression that you hear in New Zealand, a little bit less so in Australia, but certainly tall poppy syndrome you hear about quite a lot in places like New Zealand. Let's also bookmark requalifying for the job. We're going to come back to what that means. And I'm going to go further back to law school. You said something about law school. Now, I'm going to get the pronunciation incorrect, possibly. Philip Reimer, is that his name? Wow, you've done your research. Jesus. I have. I've got a, <laughs> I've got a full dossier. I've got a full dossier. So who, who is Philip Reimer and why is, why is he relevant? Yeah. So I was born in Montreal in Canada. I lived here until I was 13. When I was 13, there was a referendum in Canada, in Quebec, where I lived, where Quebec as a province wanted to separate from Canada. And the referendum never resulted in a separation of Quebec from the rest of Canada, but it created a really tense environment, particularly for Anglophones living in Quebec. And so when I was 13, my family decided to move down to South Florida. And so I went to high school in South Florida. And then after high school, I- Can I pause you for a second? Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I actually didn't know this piece of the puzzle. How on earth do you choose South Florida? If you've ever been to Montreal, it's the most amazing city in the world. It's sort of, you know, it, it's like, it feels European almost, but it's in Canada, which is a wonderful country, but it's cold as hell. And Februarys yeah. in Montreal are notoriously bad because it gets dark very, very early. The, the number of, of sunlight hours is very small. And it's not just February. I mean, it's basically January till the end of March. And I think my parents, as they were deciding where they possibly could move to, 
I think it was it was going to be somewhere warm. And so it was a combination of staying on the East Coast, EST time zone, and the fact that we had some friends and family that had been living there already. And so they just decided, let's go somewhere hot. And so we had moved down in, in, this is probably 1996, moved down to South Florida. And then after, in high school, it was time for me to consider where to go to college. And my parents didn't have very much money. And so if I were to go to a U.S. school, it would have required me to take out some sort of student debt. But because I was born in Montreal, McGill University, which is a great school, had offered basically me in-state tuition. And it was like $1,800 a year. And there was just, I loved Montreal. McGill is a great school and it was 1800 bucks a year. And so my parents were like, you got to go to McGill. Get to McGill in September 2001. And, you know, 11 days later, September 11th happens, stock market crashes, things get really, really bad. And my parents lose everything. I mean, we lost our house. We lost everything. We didn't have a penny to our name. Why my, is that? That's because of the, the equity markets? Yeah, my, my, da- my, my dad was just over leveraged for the most part. And he was doing things he probably shouldn't have been doing. And I and, got it. And he just he just did stuff that that was just highly correlated to the equity markets doing well. And when the equity markets fell apart, things fell apart for us. And my mom called me and, and said, Hey, you got to move back down to Florida because there's no way you can stay in Montreal. We can't give you money. We can't, you know, we just we're, just come back down here and and we'll figure it all out. And I was 17 years old when I started McGill. I was a, I was a bit younger than my peers. I loved Montreal. I loved being on my own. And so I basically told my parents, hey, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to figure this out on my own. And I'm actually going to also try if I can to help the family out as well. I have too much younger sisters. So I thought, okay, I'll figure this out on my own. And I, I tried my hand at a bunch of stuff. I, I worked at a travel agency. I've been a DJ since I was a kid. So I was I DJed parties and, and events and weddings and anything that... that and bar mitzvahs. Um, and, and lots and lots of bar mitzvahs, like 300 bar mitzvahs, as you know. Um, we've talked about that a lot. Um, and I, so I DJed. I was working in a travel agency, trying to go to McGill, and it just wasn't working. There was no way for me to make enough money that I, I didn't... I, I can still have a full-time class load and curriculum and also help my mom and, and dad and sisters and also pay my bills and stuff. And a friend of mine just was on student council at McGill and said, hey, just so you know, if you're looking to start a business, one business that is kind of interesting is that McGill University spends like $25,000 every semester on promotional t-shirts. The stuff that you see at, you know, in the, in the bookstore, the stuff you get in your orientation bag that says, you know, faculty of science or faculty of arts or whatever it is. Hey, if you want to start something, that might be an interesting thing to start. And Montreal has historically had this incredible, they sort of, they call it the schmata business, but it's basically the apparel industry. You have companies like Buffalo and American Apparel and Parasuco and, and countless other companies have all been created from Montreal. There's a very well-known and well-developed clothing business and clothing industry. And I thought, okay, cool. Huh. Well, let me what just... Was, what was the colloquial name for it? Uh, the schmata business, which, I, which is, is basically... Yiddish? Yeah, it's Yiddish. Yeah, it's a Yiddish term that basically means clothing. Um, and, and, <laughs> and, and part of it was Montreal was an, an absolute immigrant town. Uh, my family came to Montreal from Hungary in 56, but it, it's an immigrant city. And so the neat part about the apparel industry, the schmata business, was that it had a low barrier to entry. So you can start a business without with little capital. And I had little capital, but I had this one piece of insight, which is McGill University, where I go to school, needs t-shirts every semester. And my feeling was, if I presented them with a compelling proposal, good prices, and I was also a student there, how could they not give me the order? And I spent the next, you know, 
two to four years, I guess two years until it sort of took off and then but four years in total, selling t-shirts all through undergrad to almost every university across, uh, so across Canada. So it worked. The, and, well, it, it worked to some extent. It worked that it allowed me to pay my tuition. It allowed me to help my mom and, and my, my dad and my siblings. It helped sustain me so I can finish undergrad and not have to move to part-time classes. What it didn't do though, and this is where Phil Reimer enters the picture, one thing that has been really valuable to me growing up was I was always able to have this this group of mentors in my life. And I know you talk a lot about mentors and we've talked a lot of mentorship, but I've always had these groups of people in my life who I just really admire for totally different reasons. And I've taken this pretty far. Uh, Lindsay and I got married in 2013, basically six months prior to getting married, there were three people that just seemed to have the greatest relationship to their spouse. And I called them and said, hey, tell me about being a great spouse. And I did the same thing for being a dad. I did the same thing in a, a bunch of different aspects of my life. But when I was starting out in entrepreneurship at McGill, one of the people that I contacted was this guy, Phil Reimer, who was just a friend of my parents, who it turns out wasn't even that close to my parents, but he just, he always seemed to, every time I met him or encountered him, we always had these really interesting conversations about business. And he would teach me things like the difference between the debt side and the equity side of a balance sheet. And he would teach me the idea of investment and taught me about equity markets and stocks. And he would explain it in just this very simplistic, digestible way. And I just, like I, I did throughout my undergrad years, I called Phil towards the end of my undergrad and said, okay, I have this little business. It does well. I think I'm just going to continue building this business. And his insight was in the same way that you were able to disrupt a bunch of existing incumbents selling universities t-shirts across Canada, anyone can disrupt you. You do not have what Buffett would call a moat around the business. There is no competitive advantage here. And so eventually, this business will not become anything. It won't become that big. And it's going to be a grind for you time and time again, because there is nothing that you have that is proprietary. And there is nothing that you have that is special other than the fact that the people buying t-shirts from you are students and you're a student. So you kind of have that connection with them, but that, that was it. And his, his proposal or his idea was, have you thought about going to law school? And I was like, no, I, I don't want to be a lawyer. Why in the heck would I go to law school? Anyways, he, what he did was he said, look, next year I'm teaching law at the University of Ottawa and he's doing it part-time. He's, he's sort of a big partner to big law from here in Canada. And he said, I think law school would be like finishing school for you. It would be like etiquette school for you to be a better entrepreneur. <laughs> the Downton Abbey of entrepreneurship. Kind of, yeah. Like th <laughs> that it would teach you how to write, how to think critically, how to debate, how to argue. It would teach you how to read 4,000 pages and pick out the one line. They call it the, the ratio decidendi, the one line that matters in a court case. You'd be able to pick that out out of 4,000 pages. And he, he convinced me that that actually would be an incredible advantage in my career to become an entrepreneur. And so I applied to one law school on the advice of this guy, Phil Reimer, and I got in the University of Ottawa and I moved here in uh, 2005. Now you, I suppose, hinted at what you gained from your law education. What would you say, you mentioned a few things that, that he speculated you would learn. Were the most valuable things you learned those? Were they other capabilities or skill sets? What were the main things you took away from that? And I should say also as a side note that many, many successful entrepreneurs have law degrees, but didn't practice law. Peter funny, Thiel, right? Yeah. right? Chris Saka, both billionaires who have been on the podcast among them. That is one common thread that shows up 
now and again. Yeah. But what were the most valuable things in retrospect that you gained from that experience? Are you familiar with the Socratic method? Have you heard do you know, do you know that term? I do have some familiarity with the, yeah. with the Socratic method, but if you could explain it, if that's going to be part of the yeah, answer, yeah, I, 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 you've, you've studied Socrates and some of his work, so I, I assume there's there's origins there. But law school uses the Socratic method, which at least the iteration of it in the law school that I went to was they would ask the professor at the front of the class would ask a question and would randomly call out somebody's name. If you answered it correctly, you did well. And if you didn't answer correctly or you weren't present, you would do poorly. Attendance mattered, which was very different than my undergrad. And one of the things that this is so such a strange takeaway from law school, but the Socratic method made me really, really good at thinking on my toes. It forced me to, you couldn't read every single piece of, of assigned work because by the nature of law school, the, a lot of the intention is to overwhelm you with content and readings and work so that, one, you can get ready for the practice of law in the corporate world, I suppose, but also they wanted you to be able to start making good decisions about how to acquire information in the most effective way. The Socratic method for me was incredibly valuable because it meant that if I was given three cases to read, and one of the cases was 1,200 pages, and I can't read that in, in 24 hours, I would have to understand how to get the information, how to acquire the information in such a way that I could regurgitate it or I can repeat it if I was called on. But not know enough about it that if I didn't get called on, it would prevent me from doing well in another class who also used the Socratic method. And that ability to quickly stay on my toes and be ready at any moment to answer a question in a way that provides the professor with the information or to substantiate that I know what I'm talking about, but didn't necessarily require me to spend all of my time perpetually studying, that actually was one of the most valuable things. So I would say that, and the second thing is writing. In Montreal, I went to uh, sort of a Jewish private school, and then in the States, I went to a very large public high school, and it was a really good public high school. But I, I you know, I got to school, I went to McGill for undergrad, and, and I had never really learned how to write really well. And I only realized that in law school. I only realized in law school that I was able to write a lot, but it took me a long time just to get to the point. And that actually was another major piece of, it, it was shaped as a pedagogical learning, but it wasn't actually pedagogical. It was super practical that it taught me how to very quickly reply and quickly think on my feet or on my toes, but it also taught me how to write really, really well. And for those things alone, I, I wouldn't change it for anything in the world, which is very, very different than, I don't want to slam MBAs, but I, I did a, a joint law MBA, so I also did, went to business school, whereas the MBA was entirely case study-based. Most of the case studies, I felt, were not even you know, steeped in any type of reality. I did not find that to be at all valuable relative to my law degree to run a company like Shopify today. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back to the show. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, which matches your open roles with qualified candidates, making it easy to find the right person for your business fast. When your small business needs to ramp up for the new year, LinkedIn Jobs will be there ready to help. And getting started is easier than ever with new features to help you find qualified candidates from their active community of professionals with more than 722 million members worldwide. Post a job with targeted screening questions that will quickly get your role in front of more qualified candidates. Manage job posts and contact candidates from a single view on the familiar linkedin.com website where functions are streamlined onto one simple screen. And now you can do all of this from your mobile device, no matter where you are. That's how LinkedIn jobs can help you hire the right person faster. Visit linkedin.com slash Tim to get $50 off of your first job post. That's LinkedIn 
com slash Tim to get $50 off of your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. I want to follow up on the Socratic method or acquiring the information that you need without digesting the 1200 word tome. And there are different aspects to the Socratic method. So I'm actually in luck with this conversation because about a week and a half ago, I read Socrates in 90 Minutes, which is part wow. of a series of books. They're very fun, very opinionated. So you have you know, Wittgenstein in 90 Minutes, Plato in 90 Minutes, and I think there are somewhere between 10 and 20 of these volumes, and they're, they're very quick to digest, as the titles would imply. But I'm going to read, just briefly for folks, a description of dialectic from... Wikipedia. And here's, here's what it says. The Socratic dialogues are a particular form of dialectic known as the method of, and here you can probably correct my pronunciation, but Elenchus, E-L-E-N-C-H-U-S. I don't know if that is from Latin or elsewhere. Literally refutations or scrutiny whereby a series of questions clarifies a more precise statement of a vague belief. Logical consequences of that statement are explored and a contradiction is discovered. So this is, I think, a different aspect than what you're talking about. So I'd love to hear you perhaps give an example of how you would tackle fixing that impossibility of reading the 1,200 pages, yeah. what, what approach you might take. But I want to point out for people listening also, if they haven't done any type of debate, which by the way is something that if you ever see Peter Thiel on stage, <laughs> you will realize he has a lot of training in, yeah. uh, even if he is not able to review a lot of materials beforehand. And part of how you can be effective in debate is by asking people to very clearly define the words that they're using, very clearly give examples or definitions of their positions. Because most people come into battle, so to speak, if we're talking about debates, with very unclear assumptions. So you can effectively, in the realm of debate, lead someone to defeat themselves before you ever take a counter position, if that makes any sense. Totally does. And actually, it's, it's the best way to defeat them because then actually it's basically, it's unforced errors as, exactly. as, as opposed to forcing them to, to, to make an error or, or, or to make some sort of mistake. The way that it worked, at least in, in my law school, but I, I think this is the case in, in most law schools, is the teacher would ask a question randomly to a student and say, you know, Mr. Finkelstein, tell us about this particular case. And then what he or she would do is they would ask question after question, which helped them substantiate whether or not I understood the case itself. So for example, hey, what's this case about? I would say, well, this is a tort case, for example, and someone fell on someone else's property. Okay, well, why is this controversial? Well, the reason is the property that they fell on wasn't actually the homeowner's property, it was city property. Well, okay. And and I always tried to kind of work backwards from what is the actual thing that the teacher wants to teach right now? It's not necessarily about the property. It's not about the fall. It's not even about the tort itself. It's about some other thing that the professor believes will be valuable for these students to go off with after this. And usually it's something that is far more universal and far reaching than just, well, this is how the case ended. And so what I tried to do constantly was, okay, this case, you know, X versus Y here, fundamentally, the professor wants to get to the point where we can have a discussion about, you know, city land. And so how do I go from the overview of the case to a discussion about city land? And through that questioning and through that critical reasoning and critical debate, 
I was sort of able to draw some sort of almost like literally a map between that initial question to the final question. If I was able to get that, none of the other details really mattered. The problem was not all teachers were consistent in that way. And some professors didn't actually think critically about what the lesson was. Not all professors are at the same level. Uh, some are bad professors, frankly, at every school. You know, you do have, not everyone's going to be the greatest professor of, of law at every single school. And so I'd figured out that this is where the professor wants to get to. Let me simply reverse engineer the line of question to get there. And if I knew that, I satisfied myself that that was a sufficient amount of studying to not get called out or not to get a bad grade. Mm -hmm. So let's say that you are designing a curriculum or giving assignments. Could be reading books, could be resources, could be any type of homework assignments for someone who wants to acquire some of the most valuable skill sets you were able to develop through law school without going to law school. Yeah. There's a, there's a book called The Elements of Style. I think that's what the book is called here. Yes. Yeah. Strong and White. Exactly. That's right. Strong and White. Yeah. I mean, frankly, everything I learned in, in, in law school from a writing perspective, The Elements of Style uh, would have taught me already. And I, I think it was written like the 1920s. Uh, yeah, 1923. Um, very small, very short book. book. I think it's like 60 pages or something. Four, um, 43 pages. 43 pages. I mean, it's, it's, it's Published incredible. Published in 1918. Wow. Yeah. So if I didn't go to law school, but I want to replicate some of those learnings, some of those lessons, the elements of style was a big one. That, that would be first. The second thing that actually it did was we had a lot of guest lecturers in law school. And I went to law school in 2005. YouTube was probably around, but wasn't necessarily as popular as it was now. But one of the things that the professors did, and I think a lot of law schools do have this type of uh, dynamic where they bring in guest lecturers. When you bring in someone, this is why I love podcasts so much or, or, or interviews for that, for that matter so much, is because when you bring in someone who's written a book and you give him or her an hour of their time and you ask questions about the book, you tend to very quickly get to the part of the book that they loved writing the most. And that tends to be, not always, but that tends to be the, the, the major takeaway. And so if there's 12 totally. chapters, usually the writer, the author, in this case, uh, legal textbooks, the, the legal scholar on the topic, will very quickly get to, okay, forget all that. Here's what I want to talk about today. And that I think you can replicate without going to law school, simply by watching great podcasts and great interviews and, and just really high quality conversation. And probably the third thing is what you, you'd sort of said this earlier, but we did moot court, M-O-O-T, which is effectively like debate. It's you're pretending like you're in court. There's a judge, there's a jury, there's, you know, there's, there's two sides uh, of a particular argument. And whether it's debate or it's moot court, that has been instrumental in, in my life. Uh, and I, I loved moot court. I, I did quite well. I was able to, you know, compete with other schools and, and people in different countries. So whether it's debate or it's moot court, or it's any way that you actually can get into difficult discussion where the other party is not only looking to be right, he or she is looking to prove that you are wrong. Man, I think that is incredibly instrumental. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. To build on a few things you said, so along with the elements of style, there's a great book called On Writing Well by William Zinser, Z-I-N-S-S-E-R. It's a classic. It's a bit longer, 300 and some odd pages, but I found it incredibly helpful for removing ambiguity and what one might call in the legal profession puffery, maybe not in Canada, yes. but in the U.S. Yeah, no, no, totally. That's here too. So puffery, I'll give an example. If you have ever bought 
a shampoo that says increase vitality or hair volumizer. These are words that have no meaning. Right? <laughs> they, <laughs> they can't have a meaning because that would then be a structure or a function claim and it would require all sorts of other regulatory hurdles for an over-the-counter product like that. So, or toning right, in, the, in the realm of exercise. like that, that does not have any physiological meaning whatsoever. And to help clean up, declutter your mind of these types of words or any type of bloat, these types of books are super helpful. Furthermore, one thing you can do, and I've done this before with my own writing, is to ask friends or to hire someone like a star law student, they don't have to be a lawyer, to edit your writing. And they could be arbitrary writing assignments, it doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. make, make it an assignment for yourself if you have the budget or the access or the ability. Three pages a week. You have a three-page assignment every week and you have someone with legal training go through it to redline the shit out of it because they will identify anything that were in a contract, let's just say, would immediately get spotted by one side or the other because it's unclear, right? And if you need something to be defensible or to withstand scrutiny of the court, you got to ferret that shit out right away. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> and it, it's super, super helpful. It's funny, I'm just reading, so Stephen King wrote a review of Elements of Style and this is a funny review that he wrote. He said, there's little or no detectable bullshit in that book. Of course, it's short. It's 85 pages, much shorter than this one. I'll tell you right now that every aspiring writer should read Elements of Style. Rule 17 in the chapter titled Principle of Composition is omit needless words. And I will try to do that here. That's his entire <laughs> review of the book. <laughs> yeah, I have another one next to me just for nerds who want to really go crazy. Literally a book that I have with me today called Draft Number Four by John McPhee, M-C-P-H-E-E, -E, on the writing process, which if you really are a nerd and want to study structuring, how you structure a piece, that's a really excellent book that's as well. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, before we move on from books, real quick, you mentioned The Alchemist, Paulo Coelho. So two things on that. Number one, for people who don't realize, yes, that book has sold something like 100 million plus copies in many languages. It was a complete failure in the beginning. It was rejected. It was pulled from circulation. And Paulo has been on the podcast. I want to make one fiction recommendation to you. And that is Dune by Frank Herbert. And right. I think it will go right up there next to the Horowitz book and cool. next to Andy Grove in terms of maybe not management, but leadership books. I think, awesome. I think you'll be very impressed with it. Very Let's cool. come back to your job. What do you do at Shopify, Harley? My official title is Chief Operating Officer. Um, and from a sort of divide the world and conquer perspective, I, I look after it's more of the business side of Shopify, the commercial side of the business. But actually, we talked a bit about earlier about this idea of requalifying for your job. Part of that annual requalification that I'm trying to do each and every year is to also understand how to add the most amount of value. And one of the things that I think is really important in the early days of any company, and actually it's super important as, as a company ages, but certainly in the early days where you don't have 6,000 people, is to figure out, okay, what are the ways I can add value, things that only I can do, things that have the greatest impact, things that I enjoy doing. And the one common thread or common theme 
in my, I've, I've been at Shopify for more than a decade and I'm 35. So like a th- almost a third of my life I've spent at Shopify, which is kind of crazy, but those are the numbers, has been, how do I get more people to understand what we are doing? How do I properly storytell why Shopify is so damn special? And obviously it's much easier for me to do that today than it was for me to do it in the early days. Although we should talk about build a business because probably the first real storytelling opportunity that we did as a company was build a business. And you were sort of the co-founder of build a business. We can get into that later. But I would say today, my job is besides the storytelling thing, it's um, bringing on some of the brightest, sharpest humans on the planet to Shopify, and then making sure they absolutely have no roadblocks or constraints in their way so that they can do their life's work with us together. That sounds a little bit mother goosey, but that's truly how I spend my time. (laughs) That's a great adjective. I am going to use mother goosey in the future. (laughs) So storytelling. Storytelling is important. Persuading is important. That's another skill you were able to practice in law school. And that applies in the build a business competition, which we'll get to. Also applies in fundraising. Also applies in perhaps telling your own story to other people you meet along the way. And let's go way back. And I would love to hear you describe how you first met Toby. So who is Toby? How did you guys first meet? And how did you become involved with this whole shebang? So I mentioned earlier, 2005, I moved to Ottawa on advice of, of this guy, Phil Reimer. And when I got here, I did not know a soul. I had never even been to Ottawa before. Ottawa is the capital of Canada. It's kind of between Montreal and Toronto, which, you know, two, two of the major cities in Canada. So I arrive here and starting law school and I have no friends, I have no family here. One of the things that was really valuable to me in Montreal when I was when I was going to McGill was my tribe, the people that were sort of my people, my community, um, the people that I hung out with were also entrepreneurs. And that happened sort of organically that I just met other entrepreneurs and we became really good friends. And, and so it just worked. And I, I began to believe that in order for, my, for me to find my, my new tribe, my new group of people in Ottawa, I needed to figure out where the entrepreneurs were. And I, I just called a bunch of random sort of, you know, business incubator type organizations, uh, one was called Invest Ottawa. And I just asked around where the entrepreneurs um, hung out. And someone said, there's a group of entrepreneurs that hang out every Friday night in this coffee shop uh, in Ottawa called, called Bridgehead. And it's there's- like the Parisian poets. <laughs> I guess, yeah. No, I mean, it's, 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 it's far less sophisticated than that. Uh, and, and, and certainly far less glamorous. But, but I just, I, I was told that these guys hang out at this coffee shop. And I walk into this coffee shop and- it was a group of five or six people. And some of those people was, you know, it was Luke Levesque, created TravelPod, who then went and built Messenger Kids at Facebook. He actually just recently joined Shopify. It was Sam Zaid from Get Around, which is a San Francisco startup. Aiden uh, Mizrahi, who did fluid surveys. He's now doing Fellow. And it was Toby. And Toby was an immigrant to Canada. He'd moved here a couple years prior to that from Germany. He moved here because of Fiona. He met, met a girl who's now his wife. And he moved to, to Canada. And he initially, because he couldn't, work. He couldn't get a job. Someone told him that without, you know, without having your social insurance number in Canada, you, you couldn't get a job, but you could start a business. That entrepreneurship was a thing that you can do without having any type of permits to be living here, any type of permanent residency. And so he sought out to try to sell snowboards on the internet, built a company called Snow Devil. And at the time, this is like 2004, there were two ways to sell something on the internet. The first way was 
you paid a million dollars to some sort of enterprise type of company, Oracle or IBM or SAP, or just these big enterprise companies, and they would do this big, massive installation for you uh, for e-commerce. But it was really expensive. On the other side, you could use and, and sell your stuff on a marketplace like eBay or any marketplace that allowed third-party sellers at the time. And even though that was inexpensive, it effectively meant you were renting customers from that marketplace. You never actually owned your own set of customers. And so Toby being Toby uh, and being this incredible you know, software product genius, uh, and I, I say that uh, you, you know him, so you know that that's completely yeah, accurate. That's not, not that's an not exaggeration. exaggeration at all. He didn't like those two options, and so he created a third option. And he wrote this piece of software. He was using a new coding language that at the time was incredibly contemporary called Ruby on Rails. He was one of the core members of, of Ruby on Rails. And he wrote this piece of software to sell these snowboards. And he had a really good you know, snowboard business, Snow Devil. It was a really cool business. But eventually, as the summer came and people were not buying snowboards anymore, he had a decision to make. Either he would start selling skateboards or something for the summer, surfboards, or he would take the thing that he had he had built for Snow Devil and allow other people to use it to build their own online stores. And he decided to do the latter and focus on the software side. You know, like the snowboards were a good idea, but he really believed the software side of it was a great idea. And he created a Shopify. And this idea was anyone that had a product to sell was able to use Shopify and very easily set up a beautiful online store. And I was one of the first people that used Shopify. I met him at this coffee shop. I told him that I was looking to move my t-shirt business from a wholesale promotional business, which required face-to-face engagement, into more of a virtual business that would run while I was sitting in, in tax law and, and, and in, my, in, my, in my classes in law school. And I became store 136. I built a little <laughs> store called Smoofer, S-M-O-F-E-R. <laughs> Uh, yep, that's true. Uh, what? what the hell is the smoofing? Truth, it, it was, it was, it was, it was in the. This was sort of the time like Zappos and Google, and like a lot of the company names of that vintage were kind of made up words. Um, yeah, right. Sort right. of like the next iteration was the Afi vintage, and the next iteration was the .io vintage. And but this vintage, when I started, was it was just a lot about finding random words, and and the, the URLs and .coms <laughs> were available. So I started right. this, this little t-shirt business called Smoofer. Um, it was a licensed t-shirt business, so uh, I own the rights to some of the um, Marvel comics and DC comics, and some of the rock bands wow. uh, licensing Good for you, and um, and and just started selling these t-shirts on on Shopify, and. More importantly, or equally as important, at the same time, I really started to develop this wonderful friendship with Toby. He, you know us both really well. He is, him and I are, are polar opposites in most ways. He is cerebral. I am incredibly extroverted. He's a little bit less extroverted. I know you've referred to me as power extrovert. A little, a little bit less so, yeah, Considerably <laughs> less extroverted than me. Um, the way that he sees the world is very different than the way I see the world. And in many ways, we just, we really connected on a mutual admiration and mutual love of entrepreneurship and company building and commerce. But we also enjoyed each other's, the differences of each other. When I was first setting up Smoofer, I wanted him to waive the fees because he was a friend of mine and I thought he should waive the fees for Shopify. And so I would basically call him every single week and ask him to waive the fees. And I think eventually he got so annoyed that uh, he just made my store completely free. And years later, of course, when I decided to join, he would say that, you know, I was this kind of this, this monster and, and he made me his monster um, as opposed to sort of be on the outside. <laughs> but we became really good friends and, and we 
throughout law school and business school, we just, I was a Shopify merchant. I fell in love with, with Shopify. I thought, how incredibly democratizing it, is it that me, some, you know, I was probably 22 years old at the time, some punk kid, I didn't have that much money. I had enough that I was able to start a store, but not enough that I was able to, you know, do anything meaningful, that I was able to build a beautiful business while sitting in tax law class that was able to compete against the largest companies on the planet. I mean, the other folks that had the Batman Dark Knight license was Walmart, uh, Walmart in Canada. So, I mean, literally, I was sitting in tax law class as a complete nobody, and I was competing against one of the largest companies in the world, and I was only able to do it because of this piece of software. This software was just magic to me. All right, let me hit pause for a quick second. <laughs> We're going to come back to the magic of the software. I want to talk about how the hell you got the licensing agreement. If you're selling faculty of law, faculty of this, that, and the other thing, t-shirts, how did you go about getting the other license aside from Walmart <laughs> to sell these? So the licensing world is really interesting because what happens is you have what's called a master licensor who has the rights. And it's not always DC or Marvel or even some big company. It's sometimes maybe based on some sort of legacy or some sort of, yeah, like a legacy deal. Someone acquired the licenses a long time ago and has held on to it. And, but then you have these things called sub-licenses. And what was neat about that was there was no way that I was able to afford the license for any of these t-shirts or any of these logos in Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal. They were just too big of a city and they were too expensive. But there were all these, not even secondary cities, these sort of tertiary cities or tertiary regions where no one had the license for it. No one really wanted the license for it. And my thinking at the time was one of the licenses that did one of the shirts that did really well was, was when the Batman Dark Knight movie first came out. So I think it's around 2006 or 2007 at this time. I knew that I was able to acquire for a limited period of time the license for the Dark Knight Batman logo, which was sort of the new franchise was getting a lot of attention. And I knew I was only able to afford to have that in particular cities and no one wanted it. So what I tried to do is I tried to find cities where there was a movie theater, but there was no shopping mall. My hypothesis at the time was kids and young people are going to go out and watch this movie and they're going to come home. They're going to say, hey, I want a t-shirt with Dark Knight on it. Where am I going to go to buy it? Likely they'll go to Google, they'll type in Dark Knight t-shirt and I can simply bid on the keyword in that particular geography because no one else was doing it at the time and, and Google AdWords was still fairly new. And it would result in them eventually coming to my online store. So I did not have the rights to sell this in any major city, and frankly, any city with more than 100,000 people, but I had lots of small areas, geographies across Canada, where I was able to sell it to a very small demographic. And uh, it only lasted like, I don't know, two years or so before some big company came and bought all of these licenses and I wasn't able to sell it anyway. But that's, that's kind of how I did it. And actually, in hindsight, I've never even thought of it in this way, but it was almost like licensing arbitrage where no one wants it here, but there's value to it, but no one actually recognizes the value to it because they're using a physical retail business case or business model for it. But if actually, if I'm selling it online, then who cares where they're based? And, um, yeah. and that, that's, that's kind of how it happened. That's amazing. When did you or I should say rather how, when is also pertinent, but how did you end up joining Shopify? Like what was the conversation or the email? What what was what was the what was the actual process? So now you're now you're winding me up. So um, after <laughs> after after uh, after grad school, I moved to Toronto. So I think this is how it works in the U.S. as well. But after law school, in order to get called to the bar and officially be a lawyer, you have to do this thing called articles. 
uh, which is a 10-month program. You have to work at a big law firm or any law firm for that matter, but you have to work at an accredited law firm. You have to work as an articling student. And then after those 10 months, you write the bar exam and you get called to the bar and then you're a lawyer. And, and, and that's all. That process is finished. I moved to Toronto in 2008 to article at a, at a fairly large law firm in Toronto. And for the first time in my entire life, Tim, I realized what people were talking about when they were using expressions like a case of the Mondays or TGIF or living for the weekend, that my entire life, my relationship with work, whether it was DJing or selling t-shirts or it was sort of, you know, hustling through school, plus also having an online store, my relationship with work was always that of one great passion, but also great love and great fun. And I just, I, I loved working. I, I just, I found it very satisfying. And I liked the challenges of it. I liked the, satis- the satisfaction of learning new skills. And that all went away at this law firm. Whereas entrepreneurship to me felt like a true meritocracy. Law firms and probably accounting firms too, and some other sort of big companies like that, or industries like that, they're all probably have this as well. It felt a lot more like it was all about legacy. They wanted to know who I knew. They wanted to know how many years I'd been there. Because I was a first-year lawyer, I was being given work that was appropriate for a first-year lawyer, as opposed to being given work based on my capacity. I was told to do things in a certain way because that is what articling students do. And because I, I was a first-year lawyer, because I didn't, I didn't come from some you know, fancy last-name family, I didn't necessarily understand how to do well in that environment. In fact, it completely depressed me. I thought I didn't like what work was becoming for me. I was, my Sunday nights were the worst period of, of the week. I would get this knot in my stomach. And what I loved about entrepreneurship was my Sunday nights always felt like my Friday nights. And I love that about it, that Saturday morning or Monday morning, it all kind of feels the same. And so probably halfway into the article, so month five or six of of working at this law firm, I called Toby and said, I really want to join you. And at the time it was was Cody and Daniel as well. And I really want to join you guys and, and help you build something big and meaningful and important. And it was mostly, you know, Toby, Daniel, and Cody are three of the most brilliant humans I've ever met. They're certainly on the technology side and the R&D side, and I felt I can come in and sort of help on the business side. And that was that first call. And I, I think after I had to meet our original angel investor, was a guy named John Phillips, who's still on our board now. And I had to meet John in Toronto for coffee and had to convince John that I, I was the right person for this. And and I think after you know trying to convince everyone over, uh, over a matter of months, coupled to the fact that Toby had already known me well, both as a friend, but also as a merchant on Shopify, as a customer of Shopify's, in early 2010, I joined the company. And I think my original title was VP, biz dev, and legal counsel or general counsel or something like that. And, <laughs> uh, and that, was, uh, that was about 11 years ago. Wow. Seems like a lifetime ago. And we were talking about storytelling earlier. Let's go back to some of the early fundraising because fundraising is a dance. And the entrepreneurs make their pitch. And then depending on the dynamics of the deal, how many investors want in or not, the investors also have to make their own pitch as to why they should be part of the deal. I'm just curious to know if you have, we spoke in brief about one before we began recording, Mm -hmm. but that is how certain investors were able to get on your cap table, as they call it, becoming part of the sort of equity structure of, of the company. Do you have any memories from the early fundraising days, whether it's from the 
Shopify side of things, from the investor side of things, any particular any particular items or memories stick out to you? Yeah. We decided to raise our Series A, I guess around mid, or around the summer of 2010, we decided that it was time for us to uh, raise our Series A. And that interest or that appetite to, to raise some money was based on the fact that we began to understand our business, not completely, but at a, at a deeper level than I think we previously did. We understood what were some of the puts and takes of the company, how to spend a dollar here to make a dollar eighty on the other side. And so therefore, the more dollars we had on the left side, the more dollar eighties we get on the right side. We also realized that we were kind of doing this alone. We we didn't necessarily have too many folks around the table that understood our business, that understood software as a service, as a business model, that understood retail and commerce. And it just felt like the timing was right for us to raise around. The first thing we did was we had asked ourselves, who are we already working with indirectly? Whose counsel are we already taking without even sort of realizing it? And I think around the time, maybe a year earlier, Bessemer Venture Partners had written this white paper, which I think is still available online. It's called The 10 Laws of SaaS Businesses. And the white paper, it was, it was great. It was, it was important for a couple of reasons. One, it gave us the nomenclature that even today we still run the business with, things like monthly recurring revenue and ARPU and customer lifetime value. And it provided us with a set of calculations and formulas that allowed us to know whether or not our business was healthy or not. Mm-hmm. And, and just a quick pause, just for acronyms for sure. those who might not know. So SaaS software is as a service. Software as a service. ARPU, average revenue per user. Is that right? Yeah. Am I getting that right? Yeah. And then customer lifetime value is, uh, is LTV. Our customer, li- uh, customer lifetime value is CLTV. And it was, it was instructive. It was, it was valuable. So funny enough, we were already kind of working with Bessemer, even though Bessemer had no idea that we were doing this. Now, maybe <laughs> this is an entire you know, pitch for, you, you see so much content coming out from the investment community, whether it's white papers or blogs or podcasts. But in this case, it absolutely worked for us. It was incredibly effective because it showed us, wait a second, there is a venture firm out there. There are a bunch of partners out there who really understand our business at a very deep, sophisticated level. And so we knew that Bessemer, we wanted Bessemer around, and, and they ended up leading the Series A. But there were two others that, or I mean, a bunch of other people had heard we were raising and we got some inbound interest, which was really great. But there were two others in particular that really kind of set themselves apart. And one, I found out earlier today from you, actually, you have a connection to, I didn't actually know this story until this morning. But at one point in the middle of the fundraise, in the middle of deciding what the round was going to look like and who were the investors going to be and what the terms of the deal was going to be like. Someone showed up at our door in Ottawa. We were in this area called the Byward Market in Ottawa, right above a restaurant. It wasn't a necessarily fancy office, but someone showed up and his name was Aiden Senkut uh, from Felices. And he showed up. I, and I know now it's like, well, I mean, if you want to do a deal, you, you show up. But at the time, no one had really ever shown up at our door. Certainly not some well-known, highly respected investor from Silicon Valley who you know cut his teeth as an early employee at Google and had this great reputation. But Aiden showed up. And part of, I mean, once you talk to him, you realize how smart this man is and how intelligent he is and how experienced he is. But just him showing up, was such a wonderful... Him and I talk about this story all the time now because it's just a great story. But that's in a nutshell where others would write an email or phone you or want to do a, you know, a video conference. 
his style is you show up. And he ended up coming to the Series A, which I, I think and hope it did. <laughs> it was a really good investment for him. Uh, and, and First Mark also, First Mark Capital from New York also joined. Same type of dynamic. They simply, uh, Amish at First Mark really just showed up and helped us the second we encountered them. And that was our Series A. It was a $7 million round. I think it was a $25 million valuation, uh, maybe 25 post. And that was our Series A in 2010. So Aiden, for people wondering, is A-Y-D-I-N. Last name Senkut, S-E-N-K-U-T. So on Twitter, he's A Senkut. And he's an investor in lots of stuff. Uh, so you've got Shopify, Fitbit, Pluralsight, Rovio, Notion, and many, many others. Very successful. Very nice guy yeah. also. Here's another story about him. In the early days, after he invested... One of the things we needed was we needed some we needed a merchant that was going to sell at scale because we needed to test the resiliency but also the scalability of Shopify. And Aiden heard this and immediately connected us with Rovio. And so I don't know if you remember this, but Angry Birds was was just Rovio's uh, major hit is, is Angry Birds. Angry Birds was like flying in I think it was 2011 or something like that. And the brand, I think they were they were from Finland, if I'm not mistaken. The brand just blew up. Like they had Angry Birds cola and they had Angry Birds clothing, but their plush toys was one of the most hottest selling items of the season. And hearing that we needed to test the scalability, but also to show that you can sell at scale on Shopify, Iden connected us directly with the Rovio people, and within like a matter of a week or so, they had launched the Angry Birds store on Shopify, and that really was one of our first major blowouts uh, in terms of demonstrating the scalability of Shopify. And that's the type of investor he is. I have to wonder what his pitch was to them. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. They want to see if their software will no, break. I, I can't imagine it was. I, I, I assume it was a lot more of, "Hey, these guys are amazing. The best platform ever." They, of course, they have lots of at scale stores, and so you, you don't have to worry about them. But what was interesting was Iden had come to you because of our existing relationship, and you had made the intro to us from Iden, and, and I actually didn't know that until this morning. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty wild. And just as background context for people who don't know. Toby and I had met in 2009 at something called RailsConf. Right. You mentioned Ruby on Rails. And for simplicity, let's just call RailsConf a developer's conference. Why I was there was, I mean, I think I was largely there as kind of a sideshow curiosity. But that was two years after the four-hour work week. And uh, it had struck a chord in Silicon Valley. And rightly or wrongly, there I was in the green room, meaning the backstage room or location where speakers kind of hang out before they go on stage. And that is where Toby and I had our first meaningful conversation. Then later, uh, was lucky enough to become an advisor to uh, Shopify. And so from that point forward, was along for the ride. And and you actually gave us one of the best pieces of advice as an advisor. I don't know if you remember, you remember this, and I'm going to I'm gonna butcher the exact quote you gave us, because I'm sure it was far more eloquent than what I'm about to say or articulate. But you said, what you guys are building is great. The problem is that most people that think about entrepreneurship immediately think it's either too complicated or too expensive or too difficult. And that if Shopify was going to be something important in the world, we not only had to build great software, we also had to convince the world to try their hand in entrepreneurship. And that was one of the biggest pieces of insight, certainly in the early days we, we ever had received. And, and that came, that was from you. And we're internally grateful for that. I appreciate you saying that. The build a business competition, I, I would love to know how you think about it when you're remembering it. Because I remember the conversations very early on 
with you, with Toby. I remember walking past up and down the sidewalk next to this Thai restaurant in San Francisco. I remember exactly where it was <laughs> on Diamond Street in San Francisco, back and forth, back and forth, past like the bodega on the corner and having this conversation, the very first conversation about what would later be the build a business competition. But how would you like to contextualize this for people? Because it is a good example of a way to differentiate yourself and generate both attention for brand purposes and user signups that might be instructive for folks who are trying to find a way to stand out from the noise. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with the Jeffrey Moore book, uh, Crossing the Chasm? Yes. Okay. So fundamentally, if you were to ask me what Build a Business did for Shopify, it allowed us to cross the chasm from early adopters that were using it. And this is sort of, I mean, the neat part about Toby writing the software in Ruby on Rails is we got some early traction from that Ruby on Rails crowd. And that was great. But the mainstream had never heard of Shopify, had never heard of, of any of us. It just, it just, it was unknown to them. And so your comment that, hey, you guys have the right software for anyone who has already decided they want to be an entrepreneur, using Shopify is a great idea. But what about people that have not yet made the decision? Because for 99.99% of the world, entrepreneurship is out of reach. If you don't know an entrepreneur, if you have never started a business yourself, it does feel intimidating. It does feel out of, out of reach. And through this conversation, somehow we landed on this idea that what if we created a competition as a proverbial kick in the butt to convince folks to try entrepreneurship and use Shopify? And the store with the highest sales would win $10,000. And I distinctly remember you saying, yeah, that's bullshit. $10,000 is nothing. You got to give out $100,000, which was <laughs> most certainly more money than we had in our accounts, certainly more money than any of us had in, in, in combined. Like you could have said a, a billion dollars and like it would have been the same thing to us. That's how much $100,000 was. Um, but this idea that, and frankly, and I now realize how much foreshadowing that was in terms of the company that we are trying to become, which is the world's entrepreneurship company. We wanted Shopify to be more than a software company. We wanted to create a movement. We feel that the world is better with more entrepreneurs. How do we get more people to try their hand in entrepreneurship? And in the same way, you know, one of the amazing marketing hacks that Nike did, and this is, I mean, they deserve all the credit in the world for this, is they convinced the world that anyone that has a body is an athlete or can be an athlete. That was completely different than the previous iteration of who wore those early iterations of Nike shoes, of running shoes. It was for people that you know lived in Oregon and, and, and went to Oregon State and, and, and ran track and field. But they convinced the whole world that if you have a body, you are absolutely an athlete. And I think what we began to do through this build a business competition was try to convince people that if you have ambition, you can be an entrepreneur. And we did that by virtue of, frankly, bribing them to start a business by offering a $100,000 prize to the store that, that sold the most. And it was a very simple competition. You start up on day one, six months later, we evaluate who did the most sales and they got a $100,000 check. And what was neat about it was we got a lot of attention. We were in the New York Times, and, and that was a really, really big deal for us at that time. I, I don't know if the headline is offhand, but it was something like, a startup creates their own startup competition. And it was a really meaningful thing for us. And, and 
the build a business competition ran for five years after that. And frankly, we're, we're now actually thinking about what the new iteration of it is for next year. But it ran because it became such a big part of our story. And some of the greatest direct-to-consumer brands on the planet were created through Build a Business. And um, so it's, it's, it's a part of our story. And it seems like it was just a, a campaign, but it was so much more than that. It defined us both internally and externally as a company that thinks differently about entrepreneurship. In retrospect, and also at the time, the sort of the logic behind pushing for the 100K is there's psychologically a very big difference between five figure, six figure, and seven figure. And also, for those people who are thinking about how to differentiate themselves in business or otherwise, but let's just look at it in the context of entrepreneurship. If let's just say fifty thousand dollars puts you in the category of I'm using that arbitrarily, but mm-hmm. like ten thousand or fifty thousand dollars puts you in the category of business competition, and there are other business competitions that have done sixty thousand, seventy thousand. There is a day and night binary difference between that and being in the category of one, which is the largest X ever or the first Y ever. And sometimes it's really just an incremental difference, even though at the time it might seem overwhelming, you pretty quickly realize, right? It's kind of like the book I mentioned earlier, the draft number four, until you have a first draft, the whole thing seems overwhelming and unwieldy because there's nothing to refine. But as soon as, and I remember this, as soon as the sort of parameter as a draft became not could we, but what would it look like to have a $100,000 prize and this competition? Then you start to find ways to mitigate risk. You start to find ways to look at it as an expenditure over time. And you realize that it's certainly not going to be a $100,000 loss if it's a failure. Uh, (laughs) And if you shoot high, I think it's... uh, Larry Page is fond of saying this, something like this, but you know what a lot of people miss is that if you aim really high, it's very hard to fail completely, yeah. right? And then you guys did it, right? And you had the New York Times coverage and you were extremely newsworthy, right? Because you were doing sort of, the, you had the biggest ambition and you were also breaking ground as a first. Yeah, it was ballsy. But the thing that actually is super interesting is that what you we didn't necessarily realize at the time you only have to pay it out at the end of the competition. So you don't actually need $100,000 when you get started. You just have to be able to acquire enough revenue over the period of six months to actually pay that out eventually. And and that was that was sort of an, uh, an interesting, uh, oh, right, like we don't actually need the money right now. Funny enough, there are certain states and certain Canadian provinces that require you to post a bond in the amount of the prize in advance, I think you and I have talked about competition yep. law before, yep. in advance of it. So like, we actually couldn't necessarily offer it everywhere because of some, what they call sort of gaming law. But absolutely, it was bold, it was ballsy, it was, it was an interesting thing that a small company was doing. And we had 1,300 contestants sign up for Build a Business uh, in 2010. And the winner was a company called Dodo Case, which made the most beautiful iPad cases and uh, ended up, you know, Obama was using one at the time and he was photographed using his Dodo Case. And they also did some really cool stuff. Like they, they completely rejuvenated the book binding industry, which had been effectively shut down in San Francisco. And they, they brought these book binders together and, and started making iPad cases. But the neat part was, the big takeaway from year one was some of these businesses were growing so big 
at the $100,000 or frankly, any amount of money, unless it was something absurd, was not going to be enough of an incentive. And so as you recall, on year two, we changed the prizing to be once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, to be things that basically money can't buy. And a lot of that was connecting the winners with some of the most interesting people in the world who were incredibly generous with their time and and wanted to kind of help out. And we brought on people like Seth Godin, and we brought on people like Gary Vee, and we brought on people like Richard Branson and Tony Robbins and Marie Forleo and Debbie Sterling and, and, and Tina Eisenberg. And we brought these incredible mentors aboard. And instead of giving them $100,000, we said, hey, the winner's going to spend a week uh, with us and a bunch of really interesting people on Richard Branson's private island in Necker, uh, in, in the BVI's. And I think the last year we did it, we had over 10,000 contestants. And uh, we've actually since then have done a build a bigger business competition, which is million dollar businesses uh, who can actually grow the fastest, you know, 10x, 20x. And one of the winners of the last one was Gymshark, who as of last week is now a billion dollar brand. Now, these businesses may have started regardless and despite build a business competition, right? I mean, Ben from Gymshark probably would have started no matter what. But what the competition fundamentally did was it provided this catalyst to get started right now. And that is why I think it was such a powerful initiative and movement for Shopify. And we are forever grateful to you, Tim, for really bringing us that because our trajectory has been forever changed because of build a business. It's been so much fun and such a pleasure. You know, I love to talk about the future of retail. And you know, I'll tell you something I don't think you know, which is, maybe you do. I don't think so, though, because we, have, we haven't talked about it, is that I remember when Shopify went public and spending time there in New York on Wall Street and hanging out with you and everyone's families and so on. And then not too long after the IPO, realizing that it was a, a life-changing sum of money for me at the time, having not lost any confidence whatsoever in you guys as a team or a product, but I took my stake off the table. And it's always been this huge source of guilt and shame for me. <laughs> and so I was eyes wide open when in, let's say, late March, early August, I decided to come back in and uh, put the Shopify jersey back on and buy back into the company. So I am as bullish as I've ever been. Obviously, I'm not a registered investment advisor, blah, blah, blah. I'm not giving investment advice. But I feel like that sort of psychic load of guilt and shame has been lifted, which I'm thrilled about. And I'd wonder if you could talk to, to the extent that you can, what, what has happened in the last few months and the future of retail, right? Like, what are the things that people are missing? What are some of the sort of maybe assumptions that you have or things that you think are coming down the pike? You have such a unique vantage point because you're not only seeing Shopify, right? Much like a Stripe is not just seeing Stripe internal finance. It's like they get to see who is growing fastest or any payment processor for that, for that matter, who is, who is handling this type of stuff. So you get this incredible perspective on the ecosystem of a million or a million plus companies, not just Shopify itself, if I'm phrasing that in an intelligible way. So how would you talk to what's happening, what has happened in the last few months and the future of retail? Yeah. So f first of all, um, 
you said this earlier, but this idea that the year 2030 has been pulled into 2020, that's a real thing. And, and what, what, I, what I mean by that when I say it is that the retail dynamic that would have existed, meaning percentage of, of total retail that was done online, laggards that have began to digitalize their business and from a commerce perspective, that has all happened rapidly in three months. And so if you look at e-commerce as a percentage of total retail, when I joined Shopify, it was approximately 5%, something like that. And last year, this is, these are US numbers, last year, e-commerce was about 15% of total retail. So we've grown about 10% in like, I don't know, 10 years. We're now at close to 25%. So since March, the amount of acceleration in shifting total retail to online retail has been, has been dramatic. One is, I'm... I'm surprised by how quickly that happened. I'm not surprised where we ended up because I think we would have ended up here anyway. Two things have happened. The first thing that has happened is you see two types of entrepreneurs existing right now. I mentioned these terms earlier, but it's worth repeating. You have these resistant retailers and entrepreneurs and brands who simply did not adapt and pivot fast enough. And they are suffering. I mean, you're seeing iconic brands, whether it's Barney's or it's J. Crew, name your pick, that have gone out of business because frankly, they simply didn't see the future retail coming in the way that it has materialized. So for example, uh, a lot of these brands that went out of business, they lamented the fact that their e-commerce efforts was hurting their offline commerce efforts, which is ridiculous. If you talk to any of the guys at Allbirds, for example, they couldn't care less if you buy it in store online or on, on, on social media. They just want you to buy their shoes. And their online store may be a catalog for their offline store or their offline store may be a showroom for their online store. They are completely channel agnostic. They just want you to have a great experience and buy a great pair of shoes from them. But a lot of the big brands didn't and they resisted this change. They fought it. But then you have this other category, these resilient retailers. We talked about Gymshark earlier in context of build the business. The day that COVID hit, they're based in the UK, they were told that gyms, um, where people work out, were going to be closed. They rebranded their homepage as Homeshark instead of Gymshark. They immediately changed their content and their distribution and their influencers. And everything about that company changed within 24 hours because the world changed. Immediately, people were not doing the same thing as they, they once were. And you see that across a whole bunch of different categories across Shopify. These great brands that have just completely pivoted. You've seen you see restaurateurs that are doing meal kits and they're turning in their their restaurants into wine shops if you can't go in there. You're seeing grocery stores that historically never even came close to Shopify. It wasn't a vertical of ours are now signing up for Shopify and doing their top, you know, 12 most popular items and setting up a beautiful store. Chipotle has a store on Shopify right now where they're connecting Chipotle consumers with the farmers who are, are, their, are their suppliers. They're basically creating a Chipotle farmer's market for consumers on, on Shopify. So on both sides of the coin, you see totally different stories. And I want to focus on the resilient side because frankly, that's the real story here. The real story is that consumers generally have now decided, and this is consumer behavior, that they would prefer to buy products from independent brands, from actual entrepreneurs, from the makers of the products if they can. But for a long time, the supply wasn't there. So consumers had to buy through intermediaries. Well, the cool part about all this is that the supply side is now caught up. So now you have 
on the demand side, you have consumers who want to buy directly from the brands. And now you have the brand selling direct to the consumer. And so you have this new retail model. And and it's not necessarily just going to be online or it's going to be offline. The future of retail will likely be retail everywhere. And it's going to be about consumer preference, which is so different than think of when you were a kid and you wanted something, you know, you wanted a video game. You would be forced to line up on a Saturday morning at some you know, GameStop in the mall at nine o'clock in the morning and, and the doors open, you ran in to grab the video game and, and then you left. That's how it worked. The retailers have historically always dictated to the consumer how, when to purchase. And what's happened now is consumers are saying, no, 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 I want to purchase in the way that is most convenient for me. And a lot of that is online, but it's also offline and, and it's also across marketplaces and social media. Fundamentally, like commerce has been changed forever. Now, Will the growth rate of e-commerce continue to grow at this pace? Probably not. It got pulled forward. It'll probably stay around where it is right now. But fundamentally, consumers who never bought online before and have been forced to buy online over the last three, four months, there's no going back to the way it was. There's no way my grandparents are going to go out in February in Montreal to buy groceries when they know that they can now use their iPad to easily buy off one of the grocery stores, online stores. And I actually think this is one of the most exciting times for retail of the last, I don't know, call it 150 years. It is a tale of two worlds. And I, I'm, I hope some of these resistant retailers begin to simply wake up and realize that everything has changed and they don't have to be left behind. Here's a cool example. When you think about these resilient retailers, you often think of the Gym Sharks, the Fashion Novas, the Bombuses, the Tommy John Underwears, like these amazing, incredible, iconic DTC brands. But we've seen Heinz ketchup go direct to consumer during the pandemic. We've seen Lint chocolate, Snickers, Shoe and Bicycles. Some of these brands are brands that I have personally been calling for five or 10 years to try to convince them to come onto Shopify to sell direct to consumer. And they just never did it. And now they are because they have no choice. So it's a really interesting time for retail and commerce. And those brands that have been able to pivot and adapt, they are doing incredibly well. But there are you know, those that, that simply haven't made it. And I think a lot of them were just waiting for things to go back to the status quo, to an old version of, of retail. And I, I just, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's going to revert to at least what the previous normal would be anytime soon. And I remember the night that... You know, I decided to jump back in to bed with you guys, and it was, it was very specific. A couple of things had happened. A, you guys had been unfairly, well, as far as I'm concerned, unfairly punished in when you suspended guidance. And then the second thing that happened is I tried to order <laughs> coffee filters on Amazon. And I'm also an investor in Amazon, but I had gone to order some coffee filters and I couldn't order coffee filters or I could, but rather than get it through prime in one to three days, it was a three to four week lead time because it was not categorized as essential, which is exactly what Amazon should have done, I think. But I thought about it not from the perspective of customer inconvenience. I thought about it from the perspective of cash flow and survivability from the perspective of the person who's selling those coffee filters, yes, right? Totally. You had mentioned renting customers. And I have friends who run very large e-commerce brands and small, medium, and large brands everyone would recognize. And 
a lot of them have bought Amazon stock once they saw you know, a double-digit percentage of their sales move to Amazon, whether they liked it or not. And to me, what that says is a lot of people having that experience with the coffee filters, a lot of companies were going to get caught between a rock and a hard place where they couldn't email their customers and say, hey, come over to this other store if they had one because you'll have to wait a month on Amazon otherwise. And they were dependent on that rented customer base they couldn't contact directly. And I thought, okay, at the very least, this is going to be a this could be a fatal shot, like a headshot for a lot of companies, but for a lot of them, it's going to be a flesh wound. It'll be like a shot in the leg, and they're going to say, holy shit, we at least need at least need a plan B so that there is a Google discoverable a storefront for our products if this ever happens again. And that was sort of the assumption that, not to mention the fact that if anybody this is just sort of me reading stuff on the internet. If anyone from a large tech perspective wants to integrate some type of e-commerce capability, there just aren't that many viable players. So Amazon is completely fully integrated, but if you look at vertically integrated, but if you look at other shops that might only represent one layer of the stack, so to speak, right? Facebook or whoever it might be, their options are pretty limited. I mean, they can build in-house or they can partner with with someone who's who's already built out the infrastructure. And the neat part about that is we actually don't like we don't want to sell ads, right? So we don't want to be a social media platform. We don't necessarily want to be a place where you're able to scrapbook your favorite products like Pinterest does or to organize your home furnishings desires like house or to do any of these things. The neat part about our positioning is that we simply want to encourage more people to try their hand in entrepreneurship and to to become retailers. And the idea that, to your point earlier on the pandemic, I think a lot of consumers are thinking about their local small businesses. And well, I think we all are. I mean, our communities are now becoming far more important because frankly, like I, I spent a hundred nights on the road in 2019. I'm going to spend, you know, five nights on the road in 2020. My community here in Ottawa is becoming incredibly important. So we're, whenever possible, I want to support my local stores, my local restaurants, my local cafes as much as I possibly can. And one of the things that I think will remain after this is the importance that what gives our cities and our towns and our communities character are the small businesses. But in order for the small business to survive, in some cases, they have razor sharp margins. In other cases, they have larger margins. But we want as consumers to make sure that our money that we're buying, that we're the money that we're using to buy stuff with is going to the people that actually are behind those companies. That in order for retail and commerce to thrive long-term, it needs to be in the hands of the many, not the few, which is why we talk about this idea of like, Shopify wants to arm the rebels. We want anyone that has some idea, some passion, some vision to build something to be able to do so and to own their business themselves as opposed to renting their business from somebody else. And actually, I think one of the great things that will come out of this is this consumer trend to support independent business as much as possible. I don't think that's going away after this. Yeah, if it's easy, right? Yeah. If, it's, if it's easy. And that's, that's a super key component of all this. Let me ask you about mentors and actually mentors in a different capacity than we've been referring to them, and that is coaches. So it seems like, and this is something I wasn't aware of, but that you have coaches internal 
at Shopify available to folks. The story I read talks about Cody Fauser, I guess it is. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? And his experience with coaching. But how do you use coaches and how are coaches used at Shopify? Yeah, so Cody, uh, Cody was our original CTO and one of the one of the first guys of the company, and, and and certainly someone who's been a big part of the Shopify origin story. At a particular point, he was running engineering, and he realized that his team was getting bigger and bigger, and he didn't necessarily have all the tools he needed to be the right leader. But in this sort of theme, in this sort of lens of of we always requalify for our jobs every year if we want to keep our jobs. Cody, I apologize to interrupt, but since this has come up a couple of times, what does it mean to requalify for a job? You're getting effectively hired each year anew. I mean, what is it? And is that metaphorical? It's more of a loose philosophical guidance, or is it is there actually a process for evaluating whether you qualify or don't qualify? What does that mean? We think it's a very valuable personal growth sort of philosophy that this idea, and I, I can't speak for everyone, but I certainly speak for myself, and I, I know Toby uh, feels the same way uh, in his role. Every single year, I still have to be the best possible chief operating officer for Shopify. And if I'm not, that means that someone else should take my role. And the reason that's important is because the pace that Shopify is growing at, and has been growing every single year since, since I joined it, uh, certainly, I have to keep up with it, but I also have to keep outpacing it. And so there's a lot in that. I mean, Shopify, again, went from being an e-commerce provider for small businesses to being a retail operating system. We have a a billion-dollar capital business. We have a fulfillment business now. We're cross-platform. We're publicly traded. And so it's a really, really wonderful model of which to gauge whether or not you are growing at the pace. Because if you say, well, are you growing every year? Most people say, yes, I'm growing. I'm learning new skills every single year. But if I use the lens that if the greatest chief operating officer in the world walked in to meet, see the board of Shopify and said, hey, I want to be your COO. I need to know that I am still the right choice. And this idea of requalifying for your job from a philosophical perspective has just been incredibly valuable because it means that if I grow at the same pace of Shopify, I still may not necessarily be the right person for next year. So I have to almost outpace Shopify's growth, which puts the onus on me and all of our leaders to grow at this incredible rate. And whether you call it requalification or you call it, you know, disproportionate personal growth, that is something that is baked into the culture of Shopify, unequivocally. And it's actually made for a really interesting environment to be at because you have people who so badly want to keep growing. And Shopify makes it difficult to keep up because it grows so fast on its own as its own entity. But that requalification thing I find is an important for me in my own career has been incredibly valuable in using as a bit of a litmus for my own path. I interrupted you. You were talking about Cody, so I want to take us back to Cody. And it seems like it seems like coaches are one of the tools in the toolkit for staying ahead or front running. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, co- co- I mean, coaching is not anything new. I mean, a lot of you know leaders have coaches, but Cody kind of discovered this idea of, of a coach, and then he introduced Toby and I to it, and we really started getting a lot of value from it. And at a certain point, it became clear that we wanted to have these coaches around more often. So we ended up hiring our first coach, his name was Cam, and, and bringing him on full-time. And, and he really helped coach the, the, the exact team at Shopify. And then very Can quickly... Explain, sorry, I'm going to keep interrupting. Sure, I please, apologize. It's, it's my job. What is this coach doing? Because there are... Coach is kind of like teacher, right? There are a million and one different ways to be a teacher, a, a bad teacher, a mediocre teacher, a good teacher, or a great teacher, and then there are different subjects. What did this coach do with you guys? What you're saying is correct, which is that 
not every coach is the same. And frankly, one of the problems with coaches in general is that nomenclature that it doesn't take very much to call yourself a coach. There is no medical school for coaching. I mean, you can take a program or get a certificate, but generally not all coaches are going to be the right fit, the right match. They're not all going to be of great value. In fact, I had initially seen a coach I just didn't connect with. He was a very smart person. I just didn't connect with him. But for Cody in particular, he needed a way to scale his ability to manage a team at scale. And so his coach actually happened to be someone who ran a very large engineering team at IBM. And that was specifically the thing he wanted to acquire. For me, I'd spent my entire life, as we've been talking about, as an entrepreneur doing everything myself. And I had a real tough time transitioning from being this entrepreneur, getting deeply into the weeds, doing everything myself, to being really good at hiring and onboarding and managing people, in many cases that are much smarter, faster, more experienced than I was. And so one of the things that we had figured out was if we were to bring coaches into the company full-time, it would allow us to provide the coach with a far more context for what is the coaching curriculum or the coaching journey that we all want to go on. That if we only see these coaches one hour every two weeks, and they don't deeply understand the Shopify culture, the Shopify company, the people involved, it would put them at a disadvantage for actually helping us achieve this development that we were looking for. And so we ended up just hiring this one particular coach, Cam, full-time, and he was coaching a few of us. And, and the epiphany there, I suppose, was that by having him much closer to the business as opposed to on the periphery, we immediately got far better advice and, and we were able to grow faster. And that eventually led to us saying, hey, what if we actually created a team of coaches at Shopify so that anyone who wants to or frankly needs to have a coach can do so. And the onus isn't necessarily on them to find a coach. We'll have a group of coach. They can sort of interview a few of these coaches that we have on staff, but that they work full-time at Shopify. And I don't know, eight years later, I think we have over a dozen coaches on staff at Shopify full-time. Everyone has their own coaching curriculum. Everyone has their own version of progress and development with their coach. But by bringing them into the company, it allows them to have a much richer understanding of the type of place Shopify is and the type of development that is required. And uh, it's, been, it's been amazing. And, and to this day, I still see, I have a new coach now. Her name is Deb. And, and, and it's been an amazing journey for me. And, and in fact, I kind of can't understand. I mean, I talk to a lot of peers who are running companies like Shopify. And coaching, as much as I think it's just obvious that why wouldn't you have a coach? It's not something that is universally accepted. And I'm not really sure why. I think it harkens back to the quality assurance and the difficulty of vetting in part. So let's, let's talk about the, just to give people who aren't going to be able to hire full-time because there, there are a lot of companies or people who won't be able to do that, but they're maybe interested in trying coaching. What happens in that hour every two weeks? And it could be just personal examples, but any specifics would be super helpful. Right? Yeah. Like what actually happens? Is there like a scorecard? Is there communication in between? What does it look like? And I'm most interested in what it looked like before you hired them. I understand the reasons for hiring them, but at some point you guys thought to yourselves, this is so valuable, it could be even better. Let's hire them. So they were already demonstrating value. What did the format or what might the format look like? One thing that, that the coaches that I have seen have one of the things that they have done, which I found very valuable, is uh, they use a metaphor. So for me, this is, <laughs> I'll, I'll just tell you what the metaphor is because I think it's valuable for, for the listeners. My metaphor was I wanted to develop from 
a Mossad commander who's always doing everything all the time and kind of a jack of all trades into more of a sensei whereby I can work with really, really talented people. I can explain to them what destination they need to get to. But in terms of the journey to get there, I can rely on them. I can trust but verify. I can provide them with some breadcrumbs to make sure they're going in the right direction, but that inevitably they will get there on their own. And that may seem like an easy transition to make. It was almost impossible for me. I found that to be incredibly challenging simply on the basis that one, I think in the early days, I was really insecure about hiring people better than me. I thought that if they were better than me, what role was I going to, to play, which was completely ridiculous. And now I see that. And so I had to work on some of that, some sort of personal issues. I had to work on the fact that this idea of trust but verify, what do I verify? What do I trust? You, you, you've talked to Toby about the trust battery metaphor at Shopify, where everyone starts at 50% trust battery. And through their actions, we, we watch them hopefully get to 100%, which is where they get autonomy. But these metaphors that our coaches use have been incredibly instructive so that you don't actually know, you know, I, I, I'm probably still not at the sensei uh, level yet, but I know that directionally I'm going in the right direction here. And that's not necessarily something that all coaches use. The coaching style that our coaches use is called the integral method, which is a, a bit of a hybrid of a bunch of different uh, coaching styles. But that metaphor to know where I am right now, to know where I want to get to, and then every two weeks on an hourly basis walking through, okay, give me some examples of how you've demonstrated more of that sensei type thinking and less of the Mossad commander thinking, holding me accountable to that. When I provide them with something that is challenging to me, having them workshop with me the right way to do it as a, a sensei as opposed to a Mossad commander, man, that has been so, so helpful. It also feels like when you do bring them in, and I'm, I'm not suggesting everyone needs to hire a coach full-time because actually I have a lot of friends who have third-party coaches who, who just, they see each other every two weeks. The important part that I have seen is to be really transparent and incredibly clear about here is the development I'm looking for. Here's what I want to work on. If you just go in with, I want to get better, I want to grow, is that a personal thing? Do you want to get better in terms of leading? Do you want to get better in terms of your craft? I find the ambiguity that most people bring into coaching is not helpful at all. And if you were clear about, here's what I want to work on, here's what I suck at, and please you know, call me out on my, on my bullshit with this stuff or hold me accountable to these things, that I think is where you get the most successful dynamic with coaches. And, and frankly, you may outgrow your coach every couple of years. It may be time to get a new coach who has a different skill set. But I, I have to say, you know, if I had to distill down one of the things that has allowed me to, to get to where I am at this point uh, with my career and, and certainly helped me lead Shopify, coaching is up there in the top three or four things that I've done. What else would be up there? Any others come to mind that are in the the sort of 80-20 distillation of things that have really moved the needle? Yeah. Any other items come to mind? This is a, maybe a personal thing, but even as a kid, I always had anxiety. I never had a term for it. I never understood exactly what, what it was. I just knew that I had this thing. And I knew it was anxiety because I was always thinking about what's next, the future, as opposed to what people often talk about, a depressive state, which is looking backwards. I, I, I was always looking forward. And I had experimented with some mindfulness practices and some meditation in the past, but because I was anxious um, in general, I was anxious about meditating, meaning I was always looking for some sort of quick fix that if after 10 minutes of meditating, I didn't find enlightenment, I thought it was broken. I thought it wasn't working for me. And it, which 
sounds absolutely ridiculous, right? Of course. But meditation has also been something that I have committed to or last probably since 2014. So going on six years now, every single morning, it's either 10 or 15 minutes, depending on how much time I have. And it has made me, I'm, I'm by no means, as you can hear from the tone of my voice, I'm by no means laid back or a chill kind of person, quote unquote, but it has made me more thoughtful about how I want to expend my energy. And it has allowed me to focus on the things that are most important, both on my personal life, but also with our business. And man, like, I, I mean, I know you, you talk a lot about mindfulness practices and, and, and meditation on, on the podcast, but I am someone who for years just, just did not subscribe to it. And it was because I was looking for some sort of quick fix and never came. And once I began to think more long-term about it, to be patient with it, everything changed. And it's been wonderful for me. Meditation is a lot like sports in the sense that uh, there are many different flavors, right? There's like badminton, there's curling, of course, not to be forgotten. Thank you. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's hockey got, too. You've got MMA, you've got hockey, you've got all sorts of different sports, darts. And meditation similarly has many, many, many different approaches. What do your sessions look like? Do you use an app? Do you use transcendental meditation? Do you use open awareness, what flavor of meditation do you use most consistently? So it's funny, I had been historically using uh, just insight timer and just doing like a 50 minute counter with a little bit of white noise uh, to block out whatever is happening around me. But going back to my power extrovertedness, I have found that this pandemic has been kind of lonely for me. And I don't mean that in a severe way. Like, you know, I'm, I'm home now with my amazing wife and my, my two amazing kids. And, and I have my family around me, but there's a certain lack of social interaction that is missing from me. And so early in March, for the first time ever, I ended up just going to the guided meditation tab in Insight Timer, just because I kind of just wanted to hear someone else's voice. And I've actually been doing these guided meditations almost consistently since March now. And they range from courses. Uh, I know you mentioned, I know you've talked about Jack Kornfield, uh, Sharon Salzberg, David Gandelman. There's some just trying to look at who else, Sarah Blondin. There's just some amazing um, guided meditation coaches on Insight, or frankly, I mean, you can probably do it on YouTube as well. And I actually have found that guided has been it's like a warm hug for me in the morning where I hear this really wonderful, calm voice taking me through a 10 or 15 minute sit. And I always end up on the other side so much better. Um, and so I started with counting breaths. I'm now trying to do a little more mantra-based TM style stuff. But the truth is, it really depends on the day. And, and I'm trying not to be too hard on myself about that experience. That if if on a Monday I have this great sit and I come out completely mindful and relaxed and focused, on Tuesday, if I don't have that same experience, I don't want to forego Wednesday. And the way that I'm able to have consistency is just to just take it easier on myself around my own version of what a successful sit looks like. And I think today a successful sit for me is really just the ability to sit for 50 minutes consistently every single day, no matter what I feel afterwards. It's a very important point, and I'm by no means a mindfulness expert, but it's the consistency and I think blocking out that time that is the prerequisite for almost everything that follows. Because by blocking out that time, especially if you've operated in sixth gear for a very long time, which you and I both have, it's very easy to try to cram as much as possible into your waking hours it's easy to do and it's a compulsion as much as it as it is anything else and and by blocking out 
10, 15, 20 minutes to do nothing, you build in, I think, a sense of luxury in so much as you are not rushing yourself. And that has many downstream effects, even if you're just like thinking about your to-do list and staring at the ceiling for 20 minutes. I totally agree with that. Sitting there and you're not on a keyboard, you're not staring at a screen, you're not checking your phone. Yeah, I I totally agree, which which is actually one other thing that has been very valuable to me is is the, the value of scheduling and being fairly meticulous about my calendar. This is gonna sound totally lame, but you know, I have family time blocked out of my calendar. I have walks with my wife blocked out of my calendar, which again, sounds completely lame and unnecessary. But what it does do is, is that pop-up comes up on the right hand, you know, right top right screen of uh, side of my screen and suggests, Hey, like it's family time or Hey, it's walk, you know, my, my wife, Lindsay, who, you know, is, is also an entrepreneur. We're just, we're very busy. We have two little kids. And like, so scheduling a walk together as ridiculous and silly as it sounds is incredibly valuable because also if we don't take that walk, it's staring ourselves in the face that we skip this walk to do something else. So the question is, was the thing we skipped that walk for as valuable as the walk would have been? And the answer is most times, no, they're, they're not. So actually being meticulous with our calendars and our schedules, especially with two entrepreneurs in the house and two younger kids, that has been amazingly valuable to us. I could not agree more. And only in the last six to nine months have have I been using with my girlfriend a shared calendar just for the two of totally, us. Totally, yeah. And it has been such a stress reliever because she is also an entrepreneur. And if you somehow, at least in my case, delude yourself into thinking that you're going to figure it out when you get there, <laughs> it's it's probably going to slip through your fingers. And having it in the calendar just prevents forgetting and then overbooking or fill in the blank with half a dozen things or a dozen or a thousand things that could crowd out that recovery time and that family time and these various self-care practices that are so important for everything else to work smoothly. Just a couple more questions for you, and then then we can, can bring this round one to a close. I'm curious, what contemporary... CEOs or COOs, or sort of C-suite execs, do you most admire or admire greatly if that takes the pressure off a little bit? I'm just wondering what modern day, current day folks do you look at and say, that's someone who I'd like to, I could, I could emulate a little bit, or that's someone I could learn from, or that's a good person to watch, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, there's some obvious ones. I, I think one of the cool parts of, of, being in my position, this is a new thing for me, but one of the cool parts is using my email address. If there's someone interesting, I can actually get in touch with them. That was, that's brand new to me. I'm, 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 that, that's, not a, that's not a flex or some sort of humble brag. That was never the case. I mean, I, I would send out emails, 100 emails a day sometimes in the early days to connect with different executives and leaders just to pick their brain, just to get to know them better. And most of the time, they never responded. And one of the great things now that I I really do not take for granted, I'm I'm really fortunate to have is that I usually get a reply back, which is is so damn cool. And so I've thought a lot about that. The truth is a lot of the people that I admire, I, I sort of admire from I admire from afar, like Bob Iger. I mean, I've never met Bob Iger. I just, I think he's incredible. Or Phil Knight, I think these are incredible humans. But there are some companies that I think 
are just run by people that I, I really like, I really think are doing it for all the right reasons. A lot of them are people that are in kind of the Shopify ecosystem, people we work with. You know, obviously, we, we're, we're quite close to the folks at, at Stripe. You, you mentioned them earlier, Patrick mm-hmm. and John. I mean, they are they're absolutely driven to do incredible things, but also build an incredible company. Uh, I, I think Ben at Pinterest is doing an amazing job as, as well in that way. A lot of the people that I, I really look up to, though, are not necessarily in tech per se. It's people that I just think, you know, one of the people that I really like, it's a mutual friend. I, I love talking to Chase Jarvis. I know you, Chase, is a good friend of yours as well. Every time I talk to Chase, I learn something completely new. Or Damon John, who I know is also a mutual friend. These, I mean, Damon built Fubu. He didn't build a tech company, but every time I talk to him about something unique and different, he tells me a story, an anecdote about how he got a shirt on LL Cool J for a music video. And it just, from these, what seems like random stories and anecdotes, I'm able to find such great value and such great motivation to think about things in a completely different way. But is there someone in particular that I'm trying to emulate entirely? Not not really. I'm trying to, before I have, uh, I had Bailey, our, our four-year-old daughter, I wanted to talk to people that I really felt were great, great dads and great parents or someone who was a great spouse before I got married. I'm trying as much as possible to take a bit of an approach that I can have as many mentors as I can handle, and I can pick one thing from each of them. The interesting part is when you find people that are really, really good at one particular thing, they tend to be fairly spiky, meaning they may have an incredible strength, but also have a whole bunch of weaknesses. And so the model that I'm trying to create now with mentors and advisors and people in my life are to take something special from each particular person and use that in my own day-to-day. I try to be a bit of a generalist as much as possible as opposed to specialize in one thing. I think that there's a little bit of a anti-generalist theme right now, certainly in Silicon Valley, but I don't purport to be well-rounded, but I am trying to be well-rounded about the stuff that really matters to me, whether it's leading, whether it's the business, whether it's inspiring the future entrepreneurs of the world, or it's about... I'll give you a quick story. We have this new show that we just launched on Discovery called I Quit. And we have a studio called Shopify Studios with the single mandate to create the most inspiring and authentic content about entrepreneurship in the world. And you'll never hear us mention Shopify on the show because that's not what it's about. It's about entrepreneurship. And before I got on the show, I I sat down with Damon and said, walk me through what it's like to be on a a show like Shark Tank. And how do you show up and how do you prepare and what kind of advice do you give, which is digestible, but also doesn't come off as overly obvious. That's the way that I tend to do things. When when there's something that I want to get really, really good at, I'll find the three or four people who may not be the obvious experts in it, but I understand there's an angle to them that I really want to emulate. And then I'll just ask them. And, uh, it's pretty cool that I, I I can do that now. That was something that, for those of you listening that, that do email 100 people and you're always trying to get more advice and you're always trying to find someone who will give you some of their time or quote unquote, so you can pick their brain. The neat part about doing that is if you send out enough of those, you eventually get a yes. And that's how I connected with you. And that's how I connected with Seth, who's a big part of my life. And it was just, this is before anyone even heard of Shopify. It's been a really important part of my life. Seth is amazing. Seth Godin, for people who are, who are curious. I'll also just want to say as a public service announcement that the success rate with may I take you to coffee and pick your brain is Probably pretty low. low. I would say it's pretty low. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a, there is a uh, what you might consider doing is a bunch of free work for somebody and just sending it to them. And uh, that, that's actually how I've ended up hiring a bunch of people. I'm not saying do that to me, by the way, because I'm, I'm not planning on hiring more folks. But if people look up the name Charlie Hone, H-O-E-H-N, and my name, he's written about the experience uh, that we had. He also wrote about the 4-Hour Body Launch. That's cool. Are, 
interested in that. Yeah, one thing that I've always found valuable, in, especially in the early days of Shopify, was if I want to connect with someone who I knew was incredibly busy and there's the likelihood of them responding was very, very low, I would figure out what is the thing that is most important to them right then. And in the case of, you know, let's say it's an author, obviously they have a book release coming up. I would figure out how I can be valuable to them. So asking someone, I live in, name some random city. I want to host a book reading or a chapter reading in my community and I'll buy 30 books or 50 books. Even if it's not 3,000 books, I find that if you can add some value to something that is so damn important to them right then and there, and with social media, it's easy to figure out who cares about what at what time. Man, is that an effective way to, to spend some time? Yeah, totally. And there's a book called The Third Door I would recommend people check out as well, which has some very funny stories and very effective advice in it, which is about taking the path less traveled when it comes to contacts of that type. Harley, let me ask you, because we're talking about these various leaders, are there any biographies that you, I don't know if you read biographies, but are there any biographies that you've read and found particularly impactful or influential? Yeah. I'm not sure it's a biography, but one of the best books I, I've read, I read it a couple of years ago, is, is Shoe Dog. I'm not sure if you, have you read Shoe Dog? I have it sitting. I was sent a copy, a hardcover. I like using Kindle because I take notes a lot or highlights, but I have not read it yet. It's been recommended many oh, it, times. It, it, is, it is awesome. It's awesome for anyone who wants to, who's building a company, anyone who's an entrepreneur, or frankly, anyone who's just interested in, in, in the idea of ambition. One of the reasons that I have fallen in love with entrepreneurship and one of the reasons that I've dedicated my life to creating more entrepreneurs with Shopify as the vehicle to do so is because I'm, I'm fascinated with ambition. I'm fascinated with how people find ambition, keep ambition, increase ambition, and unfortunately, sometimes lose ambition. And the story of Shoe Dog and, and how Phil Knight was so determined, I just, I think it was, it's such an amazing story. And the cool part about it is, I think because Phil is where he is right now and, and, and has really nothing to prove to anyone anymore, he was able to be incredibly candid. One of the problems I find particularly about autobiographies is that you end up seeing sort of the, the highlight reel of people's lives, especially people that are not sort of at the end of their life or close to the end of their life where they feel like they still have to flex a little bit. They still have to kind of show off about how great they are. What I loved about Shoe Dog is there's this incredible modesty and humbleness about the story, which is this was not pretty. And there were like 12 different opportunities for this whole Nike thing to fall apart. And he goes into the details and tells the stories that, I don't know, I found it to be so fascinating. It's a great book. And I, you can get through it in like five days if you're interested in it, because it's just, you can't put it down. But that's probably the best one that I've have read recently on that, on that topic. I have to read it and I'll tell you why, which, which is not a reason that most people would probably cite. And, it, and that is that it's, it was written, we could say co-written, but in reality written by one of my favorite authors whose name people will not recognize, and that is J.R. Moringer. So he is the collaborator, so to speak, who wrote Phil Knight's memoir, Shoe Dog. And for people who want to look him up, you can find him on Wikipedia, J.R. Moringer, M-O-E-H-R-I-N-G-E-R, John Joseph, J.R. Moringer. And I came to know him because even as a non-tennis player, I read Open, which is the autobiography of Andre Agassi. Yeah. Andre Agassi, yeah. and it blew my mind. It was so good, so engrossing. You're the third person to recommend that to me. I, I've actually, I love tennis. I play tennis, but I have actually not read that. I'm, I'm actually going to write that down too. So now you know it's, it was, in effect, written by the same person. Oh, that's cool. And for that reason alone, you gotta I got to read it. it. <laughs> that's cool. Because I believe that... 
He did. So J.R. Moringer won the Pulitzer Prize for newspaper feature writing in 2000. Also, he's a hell of a writer. That's yeah, if cool. I could if I could collaborate with with anyone on that side of things, he's at the very very top of the list. He's so good, just incredibly incredibly not just gifted but talented in a way that you know, in a fashion that you know is the output of hundreds of thousands of hours of refinement and practice. If that makes sense, that's cool. Shoe dog, it's on the list. We'll swap since <laughs> I've read open, uh, but I've not read shoe dog. Harley, is there anything else that you would like to say? Any closing comments? Anything at all that you would like to add before we wrap up for for this round one? Probably the the full circle comment is that you and I are sitting here, sort of midway through the year, a little past that, 2020. One of the things that we, we talked about mentorship on this in the last hour or so, we've talked about people in our lives that have helped us. And, and, and certainly we've talked a lot about entrepreneurship, but one of the biggest things for, for us in our story is having not really mentors, not necessarily advisors, but people along for the ride that are our fans, our supporters, our catalysts for those days that are challenging. And I remember this particular moment, um, we were, it was, it was 2015, it was May 2015. We were at the New York Stock Exchange. We were about to take the company public. And I remember looking down and, and our families were there and, and you were there as well uh, at the Stock Exchange. And I remember thinking what an incredible journey it's been, not just for Shopify, but also to have people like you, Tim, in our lives, helping to support us, helping to lift us up when we thought things were a little bit tough and, and we weren't necessarily sure what direction to go into. I don't know if there's a term for that. Maybe it's just friend, maybe, maybe it's just supporter. But for those listening, you find these people throughout your own journeys, whether personal or professional, that in some ways will change the trajectory of where you're going, that there may not be a term for it. It may not be obvious where you're going to meet them, like a green room at some tech conference like like RailsConf in, the, in your case. But these are the people in the story that are super valuable to have. And, and I just, I want to say just for a moment of gushiness or of emotion for a second, that it's just, it's been an incredible honor and privilege to have you as one of our supporters the entire time. And certainly in the last decade or so, Tim, it's been amazing for us. And anyone out there, find your group of supporters however you can. It changes everything. It allows you to, it enables you to do things that you couldn't otherwise do, whether it's, I'm going to give away $10,000 for a competition and that supporter says, no, that's stupid. Give away $100,000. They push you to be better. They see a better version of yourself than you see. And I think those are the people that they help make magic. And, and you certainly have been that for us. And I'm just, I'm very grateful for that. Thank you so much, Harley. It's, um, uh... Wish you could see my my smile right now. I've I've had such an incredible journey with you and Toby and the gang, and you know, I view you as a brother. I have a lot of love for you and your family, which I hope is super clear and has been super clear. And I view you as a companion on the path. You know, that's that's a how, good. I like that term. That's a good one. Companion on the path. That's a nice one. That's how I look at it. And it's that companionship and camaraderie is rare. It is rare. And not everyone you spend a lot of time with, not everyone you know for a long time will fit that description. Right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Necessarily, at least with the sentiment uh, with which I intend it. But those people, those companions, in many ways, they are the difference makers. They are the ones that, it's not even those that, that raise the bar for you, although they, they certainly play that role too. But we have a few people, not very many, but we have a few people who have been these companions on our journey with us. And 
I'm not sure we'd be here w- without those companions. So I don't know how you're going to find those companions. I'm not suggesting that you show up at tech conferences and go to the green room and try to find find them. <laughs> uh, but I, I am suggesting that when you do find them, that you marinate that relationship, that you work on it, that you continuously leverage and, and connect with them to say, hey, I'm thinking about this other thing. I mean, I, like I said earlier, as early as this morning, I pinged you on something totally different about some development thing we're doing at Shopify on the leadership side and got your advice. Use that stuff because I think as much as I get value from it, at least from my perspective, you seem to really enjoy also providing that context and that that advice. And it's just it's just this amazing thing that you can find. And, and it's just, you don't hear about these stories very much because everyone wants to, frankly, pattern match of, oh, that's a mentor. Oh, that's an advisor. That's a board member. That's a friend. But there's this other thing, which is a hybrid of all those things that is so freaking powerful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I also want to really emphasize something for people who are listening to this conversation. And that is the expression, you know, nice guys finish last is not a truism. It is absolutely not required that you become a ruthless predator to win in the game of business and certainly in the game of life that backfires more often than not. And I really view you, Toby, and others as exemplars of the opposite, which is leading with a kindness. And of course, you're going to be effective competitors. I'm not trying to imply that you're going to let people steamroll you in any capacity because you guys are very good at short and long-term planning. But what really sticks out to me that may not be obvious from the conversation is that you guys are incredibly generous in spirit. So you have helped many, 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 many people. You've reached out and offered to help many, 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 many people without any expectation of a payback, without any tit-for-tat expectation. Does that make sense? Totally. It, it, it does. And, and, and actually, because we are playing the long game, we want Shopify to be a 100-year company. And we ourselves want to be doing this for a very, very long time. And if you use a lens of a very long-term perspective, whether it's 100 years or 50 years, you begin to reinterpret and reevaluate how you engage with people. You begin to think about things in totally different terms. Even if I'm not going to get an immediate ROI next year, who cares? If I can help someone now who eventually may or may not want to help me back later on, that's good enough. But I absolutely agree with you. This this connotation or this, this idea that you have to, doggy dog is the way to win. I don't think that's the case. In fact, I would actually say entrepreneurship is the opposite of that. The cool part about entrepreneurship is the more entrepreneurs that you that you help, the more people that want to help you, it creates this incredible virtuous cycle. And that's where things get really, really, I mean, that's the flywheel. That's, that's where stuff gets really good. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, people can check out Finite and Infinite Games by Kars as is also a good meditation on a lot of this stuff. Harley, always so much fun. Uh, this was at the very at the very least a, a good excuse just to catch up and jam and <laughs> talk for a couple of hours. And people can find you on Twitter at Harley F, Instagram at Harley, website HarleyF.com, obviously Shopify.com, and we'll link to the build a business and past videos of the uh, trip to Fiji and Gatsby Castle and all this craziness. Oh yeah, I forgot uh, about Gatsby. People, yeah, that was a fun one. Yeah, which people will get <laughs> a real awesome. kick out of. That's really cool. And Timbo, thank you for this. I, I really enjoyed catching up as well. And uh, hopefully uh, for your listeners, they got some value from this. But this was this was really fun. Absolutely. And I hope I hope we are hanging out 
50 years hence, I'll keep eating my veggies and fasting on occasion to try to keep me standing for that long. But it's really fun to have companions on the path. So thank you for being one. Thanks, Tim. And to everybody listening, we will have show notes, as always, links to everything that we have discussed at tim.blog forward slash podcast. Just search Harley and it will pop right up. And until next time, thank you for listening. Just a few important disclaimers. I own stock in Shopify. I became an advisor to Shopify way back in the day when they had something like 10 or 12, certainly fewer than 20 employees. I was not compensated in any way to have Shopify represented on this program or to talk about my reasons for investing in Shopify. Of course, I am a big fan. I may benefit financially if Shopify stock goes up in value, but I'm not an investment advisor. All opinions are mine alone. There are risks involved in placing an investment in any company. None of the information presented today is intended to form the basis of any offer or recommendation or have any regard to the investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of any specific person. I think that pretty much covers it. <laughs> so you got it. All right. Thanks for listening, folks. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. What is VPN? Virtual Private Network. It's an app that you run on your computer or your mobile device. It secures your internet connection, hides your public IP address, and lets you bypass regional restrictions on content. And I actually asked my followers on Twitter, 1.5 or 1.6 million of you, for VPN recommendations, your favorites. Many wrote back that ExpressVPN was their favorite, including a number of people who've been on this podcast. So I gave it a shot, and it is ridiculously fast. Uh, to the extent that I thought I didn't have it on, <laughs> to give you an idea. ExpressVPN is consistently rated the fastest VPN service on the market. It's incredibly easy to use, and it's one, two, three. Just download the app, tap one button, and you're connected to a secure VPN server. And I recommend checking out the website just to see the sign-up flow. They make it really smooth, very easy to sign up. And if you're an entrepreneur or do any web-based front-end development or design, rather, it's worth checking out for that alone. So ExpressVPN, what are we talking about here? ExpressVPN is great for when you need to get work done while you're on some sketchy Wi-Fi network, for instance. And I've had a number of hacker friends of mine show me how easy it is to snoop on public Wi-Fi just by downloading simple apps. You do not need a computer science background to do that, which scares the hell out of me. So if you don't want to be a victim of that, you can use ExpressVPN. Or if you're traveling and need to access something that's only available in another country, well, lickety-split, ExpressVPN has you covered. ExpressVPN is useful not only for entrepreneurs and remote workers, 
and travelers like yours truly, but really for anyone who wants protection from being snooped on or having their personal data stolen. You just use the internet like you normally would, but with ExpressVPN encrypting all of your network traffic to safeguard your data. So check it out. Visit my special link at expressvpn.com slash Tim and you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Tim to claim your special deal. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Element. That's spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious, sugar-free electrolyte drink mix. I've stocked up on boxes and boxes of this stuff. I have an entire shelf in my garage full of these boxes, and I usually use one to two per day. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. If you've ever struggled to feel good on these diets, it's most likely because even if you're consciously consuming some electrolytes, you may not be getting enough. Electrolytes play a key role in relieving hunger, cramps, headaches, tiredness, dizziness. This is where Element can really help. And now, with the winter months ahead of us, it's important to know that sweat evaporates much more quickly in cold, dry weather, misleading our bodies into thinking that we aren't losing fluids and electrolytes. As a result, our thirst response can decrease up to 40%. This response means that our kidneys don't receive the signals they need from hormones to conserve water, instead causing our urine production to increase. Electrolytes are crucial to supporting antidiuretic hormone, ADH, also known as vasopressin, V-A-S-O. This hormone helps us to get through the night with minimal, <laughs> the fewest number of bathroom breaks, improving sleep quality. Going to sleep dehydrated is a recipe for poor sleep quality. To make it easier for you guys to stay hydrated in the winter, Element has developed a versatile new flavor, chocolate salt. Chocolate salt can be enjoyed cool, like Element's other tasty flavors. Citrus salt is probably my favorite, but it's especially delicious when served hot, whether with water or even milk, just like you would with a cup of hot cocoa or tea. I like adding it to my coffee in the morning, so I have a small amount of cream, could be coconut cream, could be some other type of cream, coffee, and then I'll add in the Element, usually to at least 16 to 20 ounces of coffee. So that's a good amount that I can kind of sip on throughout the morning. Sugar, artificial ingredients, coloring, all that nonsense are unhealthy and unneeded. There's none of that stuff in Element. Who uses Element? Here are just a few. Three Navy SEAL teams, as prescribed by their Master Chief. Marine units, FBI sniper teams, at least five NFL teams have subscriptions, as well as many NBA players and coaches. Element is the executive hydration partner of Team USA Weightlifting, and the list goes on and on. So try it totally risk-free. If you don't love it, Element will give you your money back. No questions asked. They have extremely low return rates. I checked on this as I was doing due diligence for these guys long, long ago. Element came up with a very special offer for you, my dear listeners. They've created Tim's Club. Simply go to drinkelement.com slash Tim. That's drinklmnt.com slash Tim. Select subscribe and save and use promo code Tim's Club to get the 30-count box of Element for only $36. This will be valid for the lifetime of the subscription, and you can pause it anytime. Again, that's drinklmnt.com slash Tim for this exclusive offer using promo code Tim's Club. One more time, drinkelement.com slash Tim and promo code Tim's Club. Check it out.